Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. Of course, this being part two of our special look at the 2019 class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Part one, of course, was a series of roundtables, as is part two, the only difference being this time each roundtable has three guests on the line at the same time, and obviously that creates at times some audio issues. I apologize in advance. The audio will not be up to snuff, up to the usual levels that we're used to here on the 605 Super Podcast. However, it doesn't do anything to detract from these fantastic conversations about the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Want to thank everyone for listening to part one. Let's now get going right away with part two. Here it is. First, a conversation with Mike Sempervivi, Pete Letterberg, and Steve Ogilvie. We continue our look at the 2019 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame class and look at the ballots that were sent in by several historians. And on the line right now, we have three great guests. The first one, our returning champion. You know him from Wrestling Observer Live and, of course, the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network that he hosts each and every week with Roman Gomez, Mike Sempervivi. Mike, thanks for being here today. Thank you very much for having me on and not holding that World Series trophy against me. You see, that's twice. He did it off air, now he did it on air. I have to. I have to. It's all I got. Get it out of your system. It's the last time you're ever going to see one of those. (laughs) But also on the line right now, a fellow Mets fan, I should say here right at the top, but he is a longtime photographer, a longtime fan, someone who very early on knew about the inside workings of the business. I would say he was once the head of the WFIA, but I'm afraid Jim Ross in Chicago might sue me if I say that. But he is also, you talk to anyone who was in Atlanta the night that Ole Anderson turned on Dusty Rhodes in the cage, he is the man who called it right before it happened. And that's Pete Letterberg. Pete, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Brian. Uh, you know, along with being a Mets fan, um, all of us New Yorkers are Billy Joel fans as well. That's for uh, my buddy Chris. He made me uh, <laughs> say something about Billy Joel here. Well, I'm glad it was Billy Joel and not the movie Joker. But our final guest making his debut on the 605 Super Podcast from across the world. We're actually going into the future because it's tomorrow afternoon as we speak to him. He is a historian. And that's Steve Ogilvie. Steve, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, nice to talk to you from tomorrow. Uh, weather's not particularly great, so don't look forward to that. Well, let's look forward to your ballot. Let's start with you. If you don't mind, will you please reveal who you voted for this year for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Yeah, sure thing. Um, this year was quite, I guess, if you're looking at success rate, um, which I don't, but I, I got, got a, quite a few in this year. <laughs> Um, so historical era, uh, I voted for Enrique Torres. I voted for the Von Browners with Saul Weingaroff and I voted for Bearcat Wright. Um, in the modern category, I actually abstained from voting in that category. Um, and also in the Japanese category, uh, I did want to vote for Kota Ibushi, but I also abstained from that category, uh, as I've been voting the last few years in the Mexican category heavily. So, uh, this year, I voted for Ultimo Guerrero, Carlos Lagarde, uh, the Death Missionaries, and Viano 3. 
Um, and then in the hodgepodge category, which we can talk about in more detail later, I voted for George Kidd, Rollerball Rocco, and Johnny Saint. Uh, and then in non-wrestlers, Lord James Blairs, Jim Crockett Sr., Gato, Don Owen, and Morris Seigel. Or Seigel. You had a pretty good success rate, like you said. Let's see yeah. how everyone else did. Pete, who was on your ballot this year? Um, thanks, uh, Brian. I appreciate that. You put the guy who had all the people go in and then now me. Anyway, <laughs> uh, well, we are mess fans. Anyway, uh, That's right. so uh, historical, I put in June Byers and Rocky Johnson. Modern was Edge. The uh, Europe, etc. cetera. Uh, Killer Carl Cox. Jackie Paolo and Johnny Saint, and the non-wrestlers Dave Brown, Stanley Weston, and the Grand Wizard. A good ballot there. Some interesting stuff we want to talk about from that. But Mike, who was on your ballot this year? Yeah, not a very high percentage for me either, although I did get two people in. Uh, not personally, I didn't uh, assist them, but uh, I guess every vote counts. Uh, in the historical category, I went with Cowboy Bob Ellis. I went with Sputnik Monroe. Enrique Torres and Bearcat Wright in the modern section, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, Japan, Mako Satamora, and for non-wrestlers, Jim Crockett Sr., James Melby, George Scott, Ted Turner, and Stanley Weston. You know, the first thing I want to ask you guys about, and, and your ballot, Steve, it was one of the things I was looking to see how you voted, the Europe, Australia, and Friends category. You yeah. didn't vote for any of the guys that are typically considered the big stars from Australia. Obviously, you're from New Zealand. That's not Australia. Yep. But I thought maybe you would be sympathetic to them. The Mario Milanos or the um, Spiros Arions. Obviously, there's a bunch of guys from Australia who have not gotten in. Yep. How come you didn't support any of them? Was there any reason behind it? You really went for the British candidates. Yeah, I just my votes went elsewhere. Um, it is quite interesting talking about Aussie and New Zealand. They were, I mean, geographically close, but very different as far as who was on top. Um, I've talked before with uh, Ed Locke, who's a great Aussie historian. And yeah. it's funny when you talk about, you know, we've talked once, I think it was when Mark Lewin got in and it was like, Mark Lewin is a Hall of Famer if you look at Australia, but at New Zealand, he was not quite at that level here, the way he was um, positioned. So uh, they are different. Um, I considered them all. They're all good, they're all good options. Um, but, yeah, I, I really at the moment, I, I, my agenda, um, which we can get to, but, yeah, I'm trying to get some more of those English wrestlers in. Pete, on the topic of Australia, you – voted for killer Carl Cox, but I'm going to assume that you didn't vote for him for Australia, even though that's the category he's under. I know that you were a big fan of Carl Cox in Florida. So tell me, why do you think killer Carl Cox should be in the hall of fame? And tell me just how good was he in Florida? Um, well, a funny side note is that, um, we're working right now on, uh, some of Jerry Prater stuff. And he was the guy who was the publicist for championship wrestling from Florida did all the programs and a lot of the pictures and that stuff. I wound up asking for help getting, I think it was Steve Kern, uh, his fan club, which I wound up getting eventually anyway. And he suggested killer Carl Cox. And two of the biggest regrets of my life uh, are that I didn't take him up on that offer. And also I got uh, Carl's number uh, shortly before he passed away and I didn't call him and I wish I had. Um, all that being said, the man was unbelievable. I, someone that 
these days when you see people talk about the comedy and whatnot, he could do comedy, but you took him as a serious killer. And um, the thing about him, he would do interviews that were both of those as well. And uh, he, there was nothing that he didn't do. And if you just looked at him standing there, he looked like, you know, just an old guy, but uh, he was a scary guy. And uh, we were talking about it the other day, back in the Super Bowl of wrestling in 1978, um, a fan, he, a fan, I think hit him with an umbrella and he just, they let him go in the back with him. And uh, needless to say, you know, the typical old school wrestler thing where a fan attacks someone and the cops lock him in a room with the wrestler. Uh, he he did hilarious interviews. He did kick-ass ones. And uh, if you saw him, it, it's one of those intangible things, I guess. I can understand why he didn't get voted in. But um, I did vote for him more on the stuff here. I was looking at an overall body of work rather than just the stuff in Australia, as you, probably, as you figured out. Steve, to go back to you, because you do have this desire to get more British wrestlers in, and I actually saw some of the names that you nominated to be on the ballot for next year, and you certainly are trying to get a lot of the British guys in. No one on this call voted for Big Daddy, and obviously that's been a very controversial issue. Do you see Big Daddy as being a valid Hall of Famer? Is it just someone you didn't vote for, or do you think that it's ridiculous thinking of him as a Hall of Famer? What is your stance? Um. Yeah, I I kind of figured we'd talk about that. Um, Yeah, look, um, I think he definitely deserves to be on the ballot. Uh, I don't begrudge anyone that would vote for Big Daddy, but um, it goes to a bigger picture to me as, you know, wrestling observers always about what really happened. And um, I'd like to see the Hall of Fame really recognize the whole history of British wrestling. And Big Daddy sort of comes in near the end of it as far as that, that period from 1930 all the way through to, you know, 1988. Um, and I guess I'm somewhat swayed by, I talked to a lot of people that either worked with him or wrestled him or knew him. And I think this year is the first year I actually talked to someone that had something positive to say about him. Um, everyone else is negative to quite some extremes. Um, and, you know, sure, some of that might be a little bit of professional jealousy, but a lot of it isn't. Um, and a lot of those people, the big daddy thing, it did well for the business for a short time, but it, it also, it was embarrassing for them. So I, uh, there's a lot of, you know, we have to look at the positives and the negatives. And for me personally, I, I don't know if I can overcome the negatives with the positive aspects. Mike, you obviously didn't vote for big daddy. Uh, for the record, I did vote for big daddy just because one of the things I look at is cultural impact. And you voted for someone who I have voted for in the past again, and I voted for him again this year, someone I look at cultural impact, and that's Sergeant Slaughter. You're the only one other than myself on the call who voted for Sergeant Slaughter. Make the case. Why is Sergeant Slaughter a Hall of Famer? Well, you know, you strip away some of the nuts and bolts in wrestling where we really get into the minutia of what we talk about with with the the, the detail work of wrestling, and you, you ask yourself, What's pro wrestling and and who is pro wrestling and Sergeant Slaughter, Bob, Bob Slaughter, Robert Remus 
Can you think of anything more pro wrestling than Sergeant Slaughter? Can you think of a, a larger than life character? I mean, The Undertaker being an example of somebody's in the Hall of Fame based around a character. That's okay. That's pro wrestling. And Sergeant Slaughter, you have to be able to take that and take it to a different level. And how he marketed himself, he was just, to me, a larger than life character that drew money and was a star and when you still get death threats in the 90s for something that you're doing, <laughs> you know, it, it, all of that stuff matters to me. And his impact on pro wrestling, his star, I think is is under I think is under appreciated. And I know that the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame in a different era probably and did because he's not in look down at the stings at the Sergeant Slaughter's and people like that. But you look at the amount of money that Sergeant Slaughter drew with Don Cronoodle, with Ric Flair, or with Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood in Mid-Atlantic. You look at his run as a U.S. champion there, getting there upon arrival, being a star in 1981, and never stopped being a star after that, and only continued to grow. His uh, matches with Pat Patterson in the WWF, the feud with the Iron Sheik in 1984, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I, I guess compared to Luthez, yes, he was a star uh, for a short period of time. But I, I think to hold supernova drawing ability and superstardom against somebody is something that we should be past at this point. And I, I, to me, he is a no-brainer Hall of Famer because of the stardom that he had, because of the feuds and the intensity out of those and how they are remembered today. I just think he is he is pro wrestling and I I just I know that this is probably not the most eloquent way to put it but that's honestly the way that I feel when it comes to him. I can talk in in and paint with better pictures when it comes to Bob Ellis and Enrique Torres. With Sergeant Slaughter with me, it, it's much more guttural. It's much more, you know, from my core of growing up and being so influenced by him and Cronoodle against Steamboat and and Youngblood, and then him never going away in my lifetime. And him, you know, obviously became a, more of a cartoon as everything did as time has gone on. But he's also a character that's endured all of that stuff and to this day is still somebody that people hold in high regard. Well, Pete and Steve, I definitely want to get your thoughts on this because you didn't vote for Sergeant Slaughter. Pete, let me go to you first because Sergeant Slaughter's peak was a period of time where you were active doing a lot of things around wrestling. Why didn't you vote for Sergeant Slaughter? What do you think? Do you think he's a Hall of Famer or not? I think he's right on the border. Um, I agree with um, almost everything that Mike just said. Um, and, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but that's why I voted for Edge in the same idea. Um, I think we need to redefine uh, when we're looking at what being over is because of how the business has changed. Um, and, you know, Slaughter was a tough call. He was right on the cusp for me. It was, I guess, longevity. And I see Mike's point. I guess I don't go back as far um, as far as changing the line for the longevity because of that uh, during that time. But he was very, very close to being voted for, and I could certainly see voting for him. Steve, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think he's, you know, yeah, like Pete said, he's real close. Um, I actually abstained from that whole category because I wanted to use my votes elsewhere. But, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's tough, eh? It's... 
He's really, um, his crossover appeal, like you said, is really strong and people knew him outside of wrestling, but for being a wrestler, uh, certainly no negative connotations for that. Um, and yeah, obviously the, the feuds with, um, Steamboat and Youngblood, the, the proof is there as far as the drawing. It's just, I don't know, there's a few, few patchy parts to his career, um, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it's like I said, it's it's borderline, and and maybe that's the thing. You know, Mike saying is that you know maybe we need to shift the borders somewhat. And I think overall, the fact that all our ballots are different kind of tells you where the Hall of Fame is right now, where all the bankers, as far as North America, almost feel like they've gone in, and now we're considering people again, and maybe we need to, I don't know, have more discussions like this probably help. The longevity thing is something I think a lot about, and I've said this in other segments on the show. I think maximum impact means something. And what I mean is, Satoru Sayama, the original Tiger Mask, is in the Hall of Fame based on two years. And I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying he's not a Hall of Famer. I'm saying he is. But if he can get in for two years, if Tully and Arn, as a tag team unit, even though I don't know why JJ's lumped in with them, if they're on the ballot for... To what two years? Two years as a tag team, as a as a tag team working a full time schedule. If they're in for two years, why can't we look at a five year period for a Sergeant Slaughter or a Junkyard Dog or a Kerry Von Erich? I think that once you get to the eighties and the business started changing radically, that maybe you do have to look at guy. Look, the guys who do have longevity on top. I mean, it's even more impressive now than it was in nineteen fifty. But you do have to measure the difference between guys in 1982 and guys in 1962. It was a completely different business. Let me open this up to all three of you, whoever wants to jump in right now. What are your thoughts on, should longevity be such a determining factor? Should Bill Goldberg, another guy I voted for, which is probably a little controversial, I voted for Bill Goldberg, because I think you can't deny the maximum impact he had for a couple years there. And I think his comeback helped. But I would have actually voted for him just based off the peak of his WCW run, how big he got, how much of a draw he was, how big of a star he was, the fact that his name was chanted for years after the fact, the fact that he crossed over to a mainstream audience. But again, it's only a couple of years we're talking about. So what are your thoughts overall, guys? Mike, I'll go to you and then anyone else jump in wherever you want on longevity being a determining factor for a Hall of Famer. Well, I think I think we it could help to redefine the Hall of Fame a little bit if we decided to go in a direction where, at this point, you looked at it with a pioneer wing, you looked at it with a journalism wing, you looked at it with a front office wing, you looked at it with a non a non wrestling wing that would have your referees because you could look at a Tommy Young or a Red Shoes and go, why aren't they in? You know, if the ring announcer is in, why, you know, and, and should be, you know, should, Jimmy Lennon should be in a Hall of Fame. Uh, Howard Finkel should be in a Hall of Fame because they all contributed. And maybe we should get to that point, which would make it easier to to give honor to those people that you couldn't tell the territory of the couldn't tell the story of a territory about. You can't tell the story about the Southeast really without Bob Armstrong, but you know, by today's definition, is Bob Armstrong going to get into the hall of fame? No, he's not. You know, you brought up Roy Welch. Should Roy Welch be in the hall of fame? Yes. So should there be a, a brain trust that, you know, a veterans committee that should look at a Roy Welch and be able to put him in? Because I don't know how it works with the Paul Pons and the such like that. If it's just somebody convinces Dave, 
Dave or, or exactly how that works. Maybe that could be a little bit more transparent and we can have a group that we all trust and believe in the, the Scott Teals of the world, you know, the Brian Lass of the world to be on that committee and to, to choose those sorts of things because there is a lot of, to, to meet out here. Are three years being on top on national TV with today's dollars and today's ratings and what that means, that standard, uh, is that equal to what somebody did being a star like an Enrique Torres uh, from the from the time he arrived in 1946 until the time he left Georgia in 68 or whatever it was? I mean, you know, those types of things, it's always going to be, you know, interesting to try to level out. And I think... You have to go by the standards of the era. And if being on top for only a couple years or having a situation like Goldberg, I am absolutely open to that argument. Did I vote for him? No, but I'm open to it the same way I'm open to Edge and can absolutely understand why somebody would vote for Edge or Randy Orton to be in the Hall of Fame, because by the standards of their of their era, they're great. They do great jobs and they're great for what they do. Could they stand up in the era with a Luthez or something like that? I don't know. That's what the fun of the debate is about. But, you know, when you go by the standards, you have to you have to have a sliding scale, whether the older people like that or not. That's just the way it goes. Things have got to if you're going to evolve, you got to move it forward. That's the way it goes. Let me jump. Uh, what I was going to say is that I agree with everything Mike's saying. Um, one thing I'd say, though, I agree that things have drastically changed now. But when you're talking about Slaughter's era, you're going back 35 years approximately. And I think a lot has changed in these 35 years. Was it, but was it that much different when he was there? And I don't know the answer to that question. That's just something I'm throwing out there. Also, I know that this Hall of Fame was based really off of um, the Baseball Hall of Fame for the most part and how that was run. And uh, Brian will relate to this more than anybody being a Mets fan and a baseball fan, unlike Mike, who is actually a front runner fan, obviously, <laughs> uh, National <laughs> Trophy. But the um, thing is, if you take a guy like two guys that we all saw and thought would be Hall of Famers, uh, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. And I'll go with Gooden more so. Dwight Gooden was the best pitcher in baseball for two years easily, maybe longer. Hall of Fame career, no. Uh, that's where that shining star and the bright light, whatever you want to call it, versus the longevity argument came in for the Hall of Fame. It's there for baseball, and that's the way Dave established this Wrestling Observer one. So, yeah, and I, I do hear you that I, I really think that a two-year major run now is a lot different than a two-year major run back then, and I know Slaughter's was longer. That's not who I was talking about. Um, and as far as Sayama goes, he revolutionized the business. I can't say Slaughter revolutionized the business. I can't say, you know, Goldberg, I'd see an argument, but Sayama did. So that's where I see that one, you know, breaking that mold a little bit. One thing, well, one thing I, I, do, I do want to point out real quick, though, is that since Dave started the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, for example, Bill Mazeroski and Harold Baines have gotten into the Hall of Fame. So I think. No disrespect to either of them. They're great players, but I look at them at kind of that Dick Murdoch level of, I could kind of see the argument for them getting in, but I could also see a valid argument for they're not at that top level 
you know, no one would say that they're at the level of a Sandy Koufax or, you know, well, he's a pitcher, so it's hard to really compare them, but no one would say they're at that level of a Mickey Mantle, someone that you look at and you go, Hall of Famer, Hulk Hogan, Hall of Famer, Luthez, Hall of Famer. Kurt Warner in the NFL is, is like that now, but why is he in? He's in off of intangibles and with pro wrestling, you know, pro wrestling Hall of Fame. There, I mean, it's all about intangibles. How, who was the booker at the time? Who owned it? What was the situation with the town? Ta- I mean, there are lots of things that, that play in. And obviously, the person that, that goes into the Hall of Fame is supposed to transcend all of that. And, and many of the people we're talking about did. That's why they're even in the conversation today. Sergeant Slaughter is one of those guys, like, and I don't want to harp on him, but like I think did and does have the longevity for a long enough period of time. And whereas, you know, Sayama was formed from a cartoon they turned sergeant slaughter into a cartoon on gi joe and and again i think a lot of that stuff when it comes to pro wrestling it's why i think jesse ventura would deserve a spot in the hall of fame because the rock even if he was not as big of a star in wrestling as he was because of what he did again I understand what the the rules of the Hall of Fame were based on, but the reality is of the situation at this point because of the amount of voters who have gotten in and the the amount of people who vote on it now that never probably would have had a vote before. I, I think it's you have to kind of give it your own look as well too, and and take your own gut as well as what the parameters are supposed to be because. Again, unfortunately, I mean, if you look at it, if there's going to be a Hall of Fame, like you say, well, hey, Fez is in, Hogan's in. At some point, I mean, look at some of the names that are in there now. I mean, at some point, we would just close the doors on the Hall of Fame because all the greats are already in, but we continue to have the voting every year. So, you know, if we're going to continue to have the voting, you know, you have to kind of evolve with, with moving everything forward and looking at things in a different way. Steve, what are your thoughts about the longevity issue? Um, I think, well, what I'm noticing from the comments, um, Mike and Peter saying it, it, it's, and I've talked to a lot of people online about it as well that vote. And I think really the issue there is like North America, like uh, uh, there's a, is a sort of a rethinking of, are we never going to get any more people in, in those categories? Um, we get to longevity. I, I think, yeah. The modern era, it's so different because it's really dictated by the promotion. There's less, less places to work. You know, in the old days, the wrestlers were sort of renegades and they could do what they want. So a lot of guys were able to protect their career and extend it by being smart or, or by being bold and making bold decisions. Um, whereas in the modern era, you you can't you couldn't do that. You know, a Bill Goldberg, he only had two places to go. And, uh, you know, he was a bit of a game changer. So he's definitely a very strong candidate. Um, my thing is if we talk about, you know, go back to the beginning, the whole issue of where I come from being the guy on the other side of the world is in the, that original class, Dave put in some guys that were from around the world and I'm, I'm not sure why he picked some of them, but then it, it set the standard of, okay, it's a worldwide hall of fame. So, you know, my agenda is, and I guess everyone's got an agenda is to create a wider recognition of wrestling history worldwide. Um, and I think North America is looking pretty good as far as who's in, but that's not saying it's completed at all, but I think it's looking pretty good. And yet I see people that aren't even on the ballot worldwide where I'm like, well, they're not in the hall and they're not on the ballot as it's, it's sort of, there's a few gaps there. Um, with a, if there's a consistency worldwide. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's my point on that. If I haven't rambled on too long. 
and everyone on your ballot is pretty much someone who has, you know, had a, a good run. But Pete, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, it's all right. I almost cut you off. But anyway, um, now what I was going to say is that uh, along with your point, um, we know with those questionable guys getting in the Baseball Hall of Fame, um, that seems to be they came up with a committee, but it seems to be that they're voting for their friends or things like that or people that they have some sort of relationship with. And I believe Mike brought it up earlier, um, even though he did include your name, which I was like, what? But anyway, uh, about <laughs> possibly having a committee um, to do that and for the people that are overlooked. And I think that's a great idea, but it hasn't really worked well for baseball. But I think you do get some of that with this Hall of Fame where, you know, if a promote, you know, Ole Anderson, there's going to be a lot of people voting who hated Ole Anderson. And that alone may be enough for him not to get in. And we could debate whether Ole Anderson is or isn't the Hall of Famer. He's back on the ballot next year. Not even back on the ballot. He's on the ballot for the first time as a singles wrestler. Previously, he was lumped in there with Gene Anderson. And I think you have to look at Ole and his body of work as a wrestler, as a booker, as a promoter. And you have to debate that on its own merits and include his team with Gene versus just him and Gene as a team. That's why I think maybe this should be a tag team category separate from everything else. But the guy, you know, but guys are going to vote for guys they are friends with or guys they, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I don't know the ballots of the active wrestlers or the retired wrestlers, but I wonder how many of them could seriously analyze the body of work of someone who they thought may have screwed them on a payoff or someone who they didn't like for one reason or another. Well, doesn't Jerry Jarrett answer that? I mean, it took Jerry Jarrett a long time to get in, and a lot of that was probably because active wrestlers weren't voting for him. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see Steve Austin going, yeah, I'm going to vote for that son of a bitch, Jerry Jarrett. <laughs> I, can see him, I can see him saying part of that. But, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that is going to be a natural thing that way. And that's why, you know, I do like how it is broken up where it is weighted, where, you know, there's historians, there's everything is kind of you know equal. Everybody kind of has a vote there as far as the categories go. That is important because of, of reasons like that or because if somebody doesn't want to do the research on a a Roy Welchers or somebody like that, that, you know, or somebody who's on the ballot, you know, whoever it is, you know, that there's at least it's broken up where there is targeted. Somebody should not be able to vote, you know, because again, I abstain from voting for the, the European for good reason. I mean, I think the only person I ever voted for was Kent Walton and and Mick McManus, and they would be the only people I ever could vote for because they're the only ones I ever actually knew and studied and felt strongly about, you know, I can't, I shouldn't be voting in the Mexican category. And I think as long as those things are defined, you know, and are tightened too, and I have no idea who actually gets a vote and who doesn't, but, you know, who votes on categories is going to help that out a lot too. You know, as long as you have people that are serious about what they're doing and serious about the categories and the people that they're voting on and and are looking at this more as just, you know, I want to get my friend in or, hey, I liked this guy when I was growing up and, and actually take it with a level of seriousness, you know, hopefully that would take care of itself. Pete, you and Mike both voted for Stanley Weston. This is one that I've never been able to wrap my head around. I know he was the publisher, but why? give me the argument. Why do you think Stanley Weston is a Hall of Famer? Uh, well, my thing is that when you hear people talk about 
wrestling magazines, you were talking, they always say the after magazines, but the reality was it was the West End magazines. And um, everything that I looked at with this guy told me that he was really the one responsible and uh, that he was obviously the one in charge of all of it. I mean, Bill was doing writing and, and photos and things like that. Uh, but that, that was my thought. And it was, it was such, you talk about longevity and um, impact. And part of it as well is it's still talked about today. So that's where I look at uh, impact as well. Besides the fact that um, it almost seemed like they had impact on guys' careers, like a, Lex Luger and uh, people like that that would probably push more because of their push into their magazines. Yeah, I agree with what Pete said. And, you know, a, a boxing Hall of Fame inductee, a, again, a giant in the field for, and I can understand if somebody is in the Southwest and doesn't look at those magazines with the same reverence that people in the Northeast did. Uh, but I, does he deserve to be in on an equal footing with a Jim Crockett senior or a Hulk Hogan or something as you go along the lines? Maybe not. No. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we should have a wing set aside for people that are in the publishing field or journalism or something like that. But I think, you know, being on the ballot and, and giving what he did to wrestling as far as the ability to have those magazines and all of the work he did to put in and on the money that was put behind it. Yeah, I, I think he's an absolute no brainer Hall of Famer, the the same way I think Bill Apter and some other people that, again, have contributed to wrestling in a such an impactful way. I couldn't believe, you know, I couldn't think about life without him. You know, but but they, but may not again. They they're not traditionally again like a Fez or a Gorgeous George or something like that. But these people need to be recognized and need to be put in the Hall of Fame. Well, you also voted for Jim Melby, and that's an interesting pick. Was that because of the work he did in the magazines, or are you saying you're voting for him because of his work as a historian? And that opens up the category to should historians both. be in the Hall of Fame? Well, both. And again, and I'm not saying that they should even be in as far as like, you know, when you think of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, you should think first and foremost of the historian wing. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that maybe I think we've reached the point as and maybe and I know it's because I'm old and I've taken a look at my ballot in a different way. Like, I believe that, that Shima's probably going to be a Hall of Famer, and Kota Ibushi is probably going to be a Hall of Famer, and Kenny Omega could very well be, depending on what happens with AEW, could end up being a Hall of Famer. But I'm not voting for them yet, because there's still a story to be told there. You know, and as I've gotten older and I see, you know, Jim Zordani passing away and Scott Williams passing away and these people that have provided so much, we wouldn't be talking about a lot of these people in the Hall of Fame without the research and the work that other people have put in. And these people who have kept this thing alive and who have paid attention to this stuff and who have done this stuff, they need to be recognized. And with Melby, I mean, you look at the body of his work as a magazine guy, as a historian, as all of that stuff. And, man, you know, if Bill Apter is going to be in and he had the bigger name and the more gloss and I'm not, you know, again, I voted for Bill Apter. I would vote for, you know, I'm voting for Stanley Weston. Same way I'd vote for Jim Melby, you know, as being people that absolutely have contributed so much that I believe need to be in the Hall of Fame because I don't know 
again, when it's like, I'm going to do the research on this, <laughs> you know, you start, you're doing the, you're looking at something that somebody else had done and you look at, again, the, the whole total of the work and he's one of many that I think absolutely need to be recognized and, and to be put in. And with him, it's more than just a historian. He does have the actual nuts and bolts of the magazine work. Steve, you are a historian. What are your thoughts about historians being on the ballot? Uh, it's certainly interesting. I think, um, as Mike and Peter said, you know, like Jim Melby is a guy that had, a, you know, was involved in the wrestling business as well. And he has all those programs in the wrestling news um, magazine and the newsletter. So he kind of straddles uh, a bit. And there are a couple of guys that were historians also that do um, fit that criteria. I just, my issue is I think it'll it'll go back to where the North American wrestling one is and, and people will vote for the people they remember, the historians that are remembered, and yet there will be lots of historians that will get left out because they're not remembered because they're not alive or they haven't been alive in the last, say, 20 years. Um, and the interesting thing about wrestling history, something that Steve Yoey was saying is, you know, it's all been covered before, but you saw it sort of gets forgotten about and then it gets recovered again by new historians. So uh, I'm, I'm all for historians being um, considered and being able to be voted in as long as we get a, a good scope and a good coverage of, again, the history of wrestling historians. Pete, let me open this up to you. I want to know your thoughts on historians, but let me expand it a little bit. Do you think photographers should be in the Hall of Fame? Do you think Theo Errett? should be in a wrestling hall of fame based on his amazing body of work, for example. You know, I guess so. Uh, it's kind of, I guess in this day and age, we recognize more when um, people do photos and they call them a conversation starter, you know, a Facebook thing, but it's a photographic conversation starter. Um, this, I guess I'll do a line because I've been considered both by some um, is that historians have to put a lot of work in and have to put work in on the history of wrestling just by its nature, obviously, whereas the photographers are taking the photos in the here and now, if that makes any sense. So I think that the historians should be considered a little stronger for that regard. But by the same regard, um, a lot of people just look at photos and they do tell a story and their history as well. Uh, one thing I was talking about uh, earlier, you had a Jerry Crater uh, who were looking at negatives now, and he took the time to put dates on much of his stuff. And a lot of the stuff we don't have results as historians for, but we're actually going to have a lot more coming in, um, for instance, on the Florida TV tapings and things like that. I, I, you caught me off guard with that question, so obviously I'm babbling a little bit. But yeah, I think that it, they both could be considered. And perhaps, uh, as Mike uh, suggested, maybe a separate wing. Uh, you could put the photographers and the historians and maybe these uh, magazine people in as well. Let me ask you guys about a couple of names that are on each of your ballots. Pete, let me keep talking to you about this. You voted for Dave Brown. Obviously, I've always looked at Lance Russell, clear-cut Hall of Famer. I don't think anyone could question that. I've always been on the fence about Dave Brown, even though I'm someone who looks at cultural impact, and Dave Brown certainly had that in Memphis as the weatherman on uh, WMC-TV5. But 
Make the case. Why do you think Dave Brown is a Hall of Famer? Uh, well, okay, certainly cultural impact, as you said. And let's add in that the um, the amount of TVs uh, in Memphis that were tuned to wrestling, they're astronomical. And I think Dave was a big part of that. And as you said, partly because of the weatherman thing, but partly because he was just so good in his role. The other piece is that when you talk, you talked about that and then longevity, obviously. Um, you, and they had, I don't want to compare it to Sayama, but in a sense, if you follow me for a second, Sayama had it where he changed the business. Uh, the Memphis TV show was seen by so many people that it was Hall of Fame worthy. And uh, if you just look at that as far as pure numbers go, that's that's where I'm coming from with that, I guess. Any thoughts from you guys about Dave Brown being in the Hall of Fame? Hmm. You know, I, I just, if for me, not... I never got Memphis TV. So Lance was like a unicorn and that show, you know, seeing it on VHS tapes was the only way I got a chance to see it uh, for the longest time. And he doesn't have that connection with me. Whereas I, I Lance, I've seen enough to know that he is the overwhelming presence and he is on my Mount Rushmore. As far as announcers go, I don't know if the, the show would the show ever have been the same if it wasn't Dave there with him. No, of course it wasn't. I can tell that, but I just don't have that connection where I go, you know what, over a Bob Cottle or somebody like that who's not and who's somebody I grew up with, who's somebody I can't think about wrestling without. You know, did, does he go in over him? I don't think so. Over Tony Schiavone and, and the the grand scheme of his work, who's not in and probably won't get in, or but we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. You know, no, I, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't I don't believe that to be the case where I saw shows with him that were hosted solo. Granted, you know, the times had changed uh, many times where he had most of his work, you know, instead of just the spot fill of, of filling in for Lance when he wasn't there. It just it didn't it didn't stand out. And he was very good. I can't say that he wasn't the Hall of Fame where some other guys aren't in. I don't think so. But that's also because I didn't have that personal connection with him. I don't want to parrot Mike. But, yeah, I think he's a real, you know, he's a real professional. Um, he was very serious, which I think helped with the show, which was very silly at times. But, again, I only watched most of that stuff after the fact. And, uh, yeah, like the shows that without Lance but uh, Dave, they just, yeah, they just aren't as engaging. Um, and and part of that's because they kind of have that weird jack-of-all-trades thing where they have to announce and then um, do the ring announcing and then go into interviews. And yeah, Dave's very professional. He shows his TV background there. But, yeah, I, I, I can't say he's bad at all. He's very good. But is he great? Uh, I, that I'm, I'm not sure of. I'd almost say that, you know, you could, you might be able to, this is going to sound funny, but we were talking about a tag team wing. Um, quite possible they should be in as a tag team for announcing. And I know Lance stands alone on by himself, but they were just so good together. I think Bobby it's really unusual. Bobby and Gorilla could fit in that category as well, too. You know, absolutely. You know, if you were taking a look at, at those you know, types of things. Again, if you had an unofficial part of the Hall of Fame wing where you just, 
you know, and this is where again, too, and I'm not trying to get everybody into the hall, but it's like I this is where I see the conversation with people like two in Georgia or uh, Junkyard Dog being the biggest case, I think, in, in Mid-South, at least when it comes to North America. Uh, and Big Daddy, I guess, in, in the UK as well, too, although I'll, I'll distance myself from that a little bit and be a coward and, and abstain, continue to abstain from that. But, you know, can you tell the story of a place? Can you still tell the story of wrestling? You know, what we're, we're, we're honoring here, what we're looking at here. Can you tell that story without that person? You know, and I think some people transcended to a different degree. I think Jesse Ventura did. I think Sputnik Monroe uh, does, but I, you know, should those people like a Dave Brown, should they have some recognition? Because can you tell the, the story without, you know, Dave and Lance out there? I, I don't know. And I could see people arguing that, that you couldn't. So I, I'm, you know, again, it's not like I'm trying to get everybody in or anything like that, but it's interesting to think about. And, and maybe those people should, you know, have some sort of honor in some sort of way. One guy that got in this year was Bearcat Wright. I voted for him. Steve, you voted for him. Mike, you voted for him. Pete, you didn't. One guy who didn't get in, then all three of us voted for him, and once again, Pete didn't, was Enrique Torres. Mike and Steve, make the case. Why do you think Enrique Torres has been overlooked? Why do you think he's a Hall of Famer? And from there, after you hear their argument, Pete, let me know what you think, why you didn't vote for him. But uh, let me start with Mike and Steve here. Yeah, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll start it up. Um, you know, I've been somebody that's been a big proponent of Enrique Torres for a long time. And like I said, you know, a a star from the time he stepped foot in, in the ring in 1946 to the time he exited Georgia and was a star everywhere that he went. I think in another era, and I know people hate hypotheticals like this, and, and I will have an old person shake their fist and argue at me about it, that... You know, in another era, do I think he would have been a world champion on a different level? Yes. Was he a world champion in California? Yes. Was he a star in Atlanta when he went down there and, and was involved with his brothers against the Vashans and that were? Yes. He, you know, drew big money there, drew big money in St. Louis and was a great opponent for Luthez, the perfect opponent as far as the Luthez machine goes and how things were set up and how things were done. He was that dude. You know, he, I just I, he is one of those guys that historically I look back at and I look at the the work that the Yoes and guys like that have done. And I've, I've you know, the, the problem is there's not a whole lot of footage of him. What What's out there is not all that excited. There's not, you know, there's not tons of him and Leone and, and him, you know, in his prime. It's just unfortunately it's not out there. So it's hard to judge. But you look at the positions that he was in across the country and not only across the country, up into Canada, his run throughout the 50s in San Francisco, where he he just didn't get beat there. He didn't get beat in San Francisco as a single star. And granted, yeah, it was a tag territory and the Sharps were on top. But other than Leo Namanlini, there was nobody bigger than Enrique Torres. And damn it, that should probably count for something. You know, tag everywhere he went. He was successful, whether it be in tag teams or on single on top of the card. And he's just one of those guys I think that's forgotten about the time. And there's always going to be somebody like me who's taken this case and the torch and is going to bang the drum. But the reality is I, I and I get it that I'm running down a, uh, a a deep cave right now and I'm getting further and further away and that light is getting smaller and smaller for the, the, the voters on the outside. And it's too bad because I think him and I think Bob Ellis is another one, the original cowboy that, you know, hopefully like a bear cat, right? People take a little bit of a different look at. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I first got interested in, in 
him as being more than just a somebody, I guess, was when I was going back and reading the history and just reading a lot of research and, and this name, you know, there's all the famous names that you, that have survived through time. And then hang on, who's this guy, Enrique Torres, he keeps showing up in all these major places and he's on top and he's either presented as an equal or above the equal of a lot of famous guys. And that's when you really got to start taking it seriously. And, and again, yeah, that I'll always look at how the, how people are being used over and over again. And, He's always presented seriously. Uh, it's always very respectful. He isn't, you know, in that era, there was a lot of, um, I guess, certain characteristics of, of Latin wrestlers. And he is instead presented as a very straight guy and he's a world champion. And, um, and yeah, and he was used time and time again. So for me, I, you know, he's someone special. And he, once you start digging, you, it just confirmed what I suspected. Pete, you didn't vote for Enrique Torres. I'd like to know your reason behind that, but also a couple other things to hit you with right now, and then Mike and Steve, feel free to jump in with your thoughts. You didn't vote for Bearcat Wright either, and you did vote for Rocky Johnson. Rocky Johnson's one of those guys I've always looked at as being a, a level below, but make the case for Rocky Johnson, but let's start with why you didn't vote for Enrique and why you didn't vote for Bearcat. Okay, uh, Enrique, um, if you talk to people I mean, you you know we're around um you know the hardcore fans and i'm um, going back to the mid 70s on up when you would hear people talk about wrestling and famous wrestlers and guys that um made the business and whatnot you never heard his name um i think that guys have uncovered a lot about him and um yeah, if you look at these numbers or you look at, you know, what these two gentlemen were just talking about, there's a strong case for him. But I don't know that he has that. I hate to call it the it factor, but I'm guessing that would be what I mean, because uh, when you have all these people and no one ever mentions this guy's name and it's kind of lumped in with, you know, his brother or whatever it was. You, you would even hear about Ramon more than Enrique. Uh, but I do see when I look at the research that these guys have done, I see, well, yeah, there is, there is a good case for them, but um, that's where I was. And then for you, not your thoughts on not voting for Bearcat, Wright And voting for Rocky Johnson. Okay. Uh, Bearcat, Wright, um, I saw a lot of the good for him, but I also thought that, especially in that era, about the unprofessionalism, uh, you know, the whole thing with um, and Gene LaBelle and all that stuff and Blassie, where they he wouldn't give up the title. And um, I do understand, you know, the a lot about the racial climate back then. And um, I actually did a paper about that when I was in college, believe it or not, about um, the racial stereotype. Uh, racial stereotyping in professional wrestling. Um, so I get that. And I do get that they had to fight harder to get what they got. But by the same token, it was just that unprofessionalism thing that just didn't let me pull the trigger. Why did you pull the trigger on Rocky Johnson? Okay. And that's where I was going. Rocky, um, I saw most of, well, not most of his career. Let's go from 75 on up. Uh, on top everywhere, um, 
very, very believable, uh, whether you're talking about punches or, and I've never seen anybody throw the drop kicks like he did. Um, very, very memorable. Uh, almost anybody that saw him uh, remembered him. The idea that he spawned uh, the rock, uh, you know, that that has a little bit, but not all that much. And I uh, actually have wavered on Rocky from year to year um, voting, uh, to be honest. Uh, but I felt like the same thing that he fought that battle and wound up over in eras that they didn't have that or they'd allow one uh, person of color to uh, be over in a territory, but it was, he was always the one when he was there, whether you're talking about Los Angeles or Florida, Georgia, uh, Tennessee, and so on. And you, they did um, have a little bit of a run in the WWE as well. Steve, a name on your list that uh, got my attention was Lord James Blears. He's on in the non-wrestlers category. I'm assuming you also thought about his wrestling career, though, when you voted for him. But tell me if you did or you didn't, and tell me why you think he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Brian. It's a real interesting one. Um, well, his wrestling career was was uh, all right. Um, I don't think it's Hall of Fame worthy. Uh, he certainly did great with the gimmick, and uh, he was good at self-publicizing. But no, I looked at him as a non-wrestler, and um, probably what helped me end up because i'd been considering him but was to convince me to to do it was reading uh ed francis's book again and just reading between the lines there but i think as far as you know we're talking about you know lance russell and that and as lord james blairs is really a, quite unique as a host of, of a wrestling show he really kind of came to represent um hawaii wrestling more so than any one wrestler although there were guys obviously like king curtis um, they were synonymous with that. But then King Curtis was big down here in New Zealand and, and all over too. But Lord James Blairs was like the constant. Uh, he had a very positive effect on wrestling in Hawaii. And if you look reading um, Ed Francis' book, the way that Lord uh, Blairs was the guy that was able to convince a lot of people to come in and work for them. Um, he obviously had a very positive connotation within the business um, with his peers. So I've sort of combined all that together. And I thought, you know, it's, yeah, I think, He's kind of unique, but in his own way, as far as representing a, a region, he he's um, Hall of Fame worthy. You know, it's interesting. I, I said before that cultural impact uh, means something to me when it comes to voting. And although Hawaii is a series of islands and relatively small, he did have that major impact. Just a few years ago, I was in an antique store in Maui. And I'm thinking, okay, it's an antique store. There has to be something wrestling related here that I could bring home. This would be great. And I asked the little old lady behind the counter, I said, do you have anything from 50th State Wrestling? Because I had read that Ed Francis book. And by the way, I recommend everyone get it. It's a fantastic book filled with fantastic photos and reprints of program, a really great book. And I said, do you have anything from 50th State Wrestling? And she said, no, I don't. But we used to watch it all the time. Tally Ho Bleers. I mean, it's the first thing she said, the first name she said. This little old lady, I mean, she wasn't old when she watched it. But Tally Hoblier, she wasn't someone you would typically think, this is a wrestling fan. She did not talk about wrestling past that point. She just said, we don't have anything, but I used to watch it. And the first name she remembered was James Blears. And obviously he was as much a part of that program as the wrestlers. 
the people there in Hawaii knew who he was as much as they knew uh, Curtis Ioke or anyone else. Yeah, I guess the sorry, Brian. Yeah, as I say, the wrestlers came and went, but he stayed there. Um, and just one note on that book, I actually got my copy in Hawaii. Um, and I went just into a bookstore and I was like, do you have this book? And the girl's like, oh, I don't know. And then an older lady was like, oh, yeah, we've got that. And they typed into the computer and it was actually in the Hawaiian history section, which I thought was pretty cool because I'd been wow. looking for it in the sports section and it wasn't in the sports section. Well, sometimes it, that's easier than than the wrestlers going in. We can debate over what style that you liked or what era it is or something like that. But the consistent mouthpiece, the voice, the the Solis, the Lance Russells, the Jim Rosses, the Ken Waltons, the Tally Ho Bleers, I mean... That means something, and they were again part of the show, and they as much of a part of the show for good or for bad. In the case of an Ed Whelan, as I look at that from way on the outside of somebody who I didn't like, but you know, I can understand if you came from that area that if that's somebody you believe in, you you would go ahead and vote for him. You know, Pete, you had a very interesting point before, and as we begin to start wrapping things up, I want to ask you a little bit about this. Obviously, we're all historians on this call, but Pete, you've been around wrestling a lot longer than us, and you were, I said it at the top of the show, you were someone who found a way to infiltrate things very early on. You had inside information early on. You knew about what was happening. You knew about the inner workings. You talked to people. How much do you weigh when it comes to voting for the Hall of Fame research and analytics and stats that are thrown at you about how big uh, someone, you know, the houses that someone drew or whatever it may be? Versus the word of mouth, what you heard from people who were either in the business or near the business and what they thought about things. How do you weigh one versus the other when voting? I try to consider all of it. Um, like, I, I guess it, I hit on that point when we were talking about Enrique Torres. Um, I would listen to what people said, and you, you said it better than I did. Um, but by the same token, I'm also a statistics guy, not just from baseball. I actually teach it. Um, so I really love reading the research that people do. Um, it's, and I was doing that myself um, when I would sit there. I'd compile wins and losses for wrestlers. And a lot of the stuff that people are doing now, um, I did back then. Uh, so I'm very into the statistics part as well, the wins and losses, but who's over. And it's honestly been a very hard balancing act for me over the years. Guys, let's talk about the future of the Hall of Fame. We've made a few comments about things that could be done in terms of more wings to the Hall of Fame. But what improvements do you think could be made or should be made to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame going forward? Michael, let me start with you. Well, I think the thing first and foremost um, is, and it's to Dave, it would be making sure that the voting committee and the people that have been extended the ability to vote do take it seriously. And I know that this is not the end all and be all of the world. There are plenty of other problems that need to get solved more than us just yelling it back and forth about guys who belong in a pro wrestling hall of fame. But you know, I do take it seriously, and I, I do enjoy this. And being a sports guy and being a guy that grew up with, you know, being the Hall of Fames and sports was an honor. And I take it as kind of an honor that I get a vote for this stuff. I love the history of wrestling, and I think as long as we have a well-balanced group of voters who 
are still entertained and who love wrestling or who loved wrestling from their eras and they have a uh, a, a semblance of history and they do talk to people. I mean, and they can weigh things out. I mean, just because Les Thatcher says that the Von Bronners belong in the hall of fame, you know, he'll tell you 10 teams from his era and guys that he was in with. And it's like, man, you got to take that and talk to other people. And that's why I think shows like this are important. That's why gentlemen who are on the phone like this are very, very important. And as long as people take it seriously as long as there's qualified people voting on it as long as there's people who are passionate about the wrestling business and who really actually the bottom line at the end of the day really care about it as long as they have a say in in trying to honor it and represent it i think that's really the best you can ask for and that the only person who can make that call right now is dave and i hope everything is is again is just stays on the up and up that way Steve, what are your thoughts? How can the Hall of Fame be improved if you think it can be improved? What changes, if any, would you like to see made? Any concerns about the voting and the way the voting has been going the last several years? Any thoughts about the the Hall of Fame in general? Yeah, I've actually got a few, as you might imagine. Um, I think, firstly, you know, it is Dave's um, brainchild, and there's two quotes that Dave's made, and I've they worth thinking about. First, he said it was, you know, it's not a hall of famous, but I think as we've talked about today that maybe that's something that he needs to reconsider because it, it's a big deal because it is wrestling after all. But so if some people can transcend wrestling into the wider world, that's quite um, unique really. Um, and then the other thing he said was that, which we'll get to about the essays, but you know, people from Steve Casey's era, this was just the thing he said, uh, and then I'm, I'm remembering it later and using it, but he said people from Steve Casey's era, um, we shouldn't probably let people vote on anyone from that era. And I was like, well, Steve Casey wrestled into the 1950s. I mean, that's not that long ago, really. And why can't we vote on those people if we have all the information? Um, so that's where you get to. I don't personally, I don't know if I've got, the skill for a start or the time to write essays on all the people that I think should get in, but maybe I'll have to pick one or two of them because it might be the only way they get in. But, uh, to the, what we've been talking about today, it would be good to have a committee that's, you know, that gets to read the essay. I hope it's not just Dave that reads it. Um, and then as far as improvements, uh, I think the UK and Europe should be separated out from that miscellaneous group because it's really doing a disservice to what was, you know, for the most of the 20th century and even into the 19th century, a major part of professional wrestling in the world. Um, even the UK and Europe are separate, again, from each other, but it's it's fair enough to group them together. Um, and then the rest of the world, sure, that can be its own group of, um, you know, at the moment it's got Pacific Islands on there, but I don't see any candidates for the Pacific Islands, and there probably aren't any, because... Um, very little is known about that, but there's Pakistan and India, and you know, along with Matt Farmer, uh, we've been trying to start digging out some some history and some research on that. And Europe's coming along real well with research. There's a guy Phil Lyons that's been researching Greece and Spain. So I feel like UK and Europe, if that could be its own thing, and maybe he can take uh, my shopping list of people that I send him every year and and build it around that, and then maybe people might start to evaluate that area a bit more seriously. Um, and I think for the rest of it, it's it's a matter of just going, you know, do we have a good representation of that era? And, and you know, the wrestlers aren't going to do research. They're just not, and they don't have to. I think for them, it's if they're an old wrestler, then they'll think about how that person was to work with. 
um, probably how much money they made together. And in the modern wrestlers, it's all going to be about influence, um, you know, and, and that's a big thing because some of the best wrestlers in the world were, were influ- influenced, excuse me, by wrestlers from earlier eras. So that's that's a big deal too. But I think, you know, some of us younger guys, uh, and I say younger in, in context uh, to compare to Pete, um, but, you know, Pete's got to go with the world he lived in, and that's great because that's different from me. And, I, I, you know, people of my age and, and younger people probably, you know, we just need to do our research. But just keep an open mind, I think. That's the main thing. Pete, what are your thoughts? Any changes you'd like to see to the Hall of Fame or the way the voting is done or any wings added? What are your thoughts on ways to improve the Hall of Fame, or do you think it's fine the way it is? I'd like to see um, a committee as well, uh, and kind of like the Veterans Committee, you know, for the people that weren't voted in. And something that I thought of as we were talking, because listening to this conversation has really been helpful for me, um, perhaps have this committee not just vote, but perhaps do what we're doing now, have uh, however many way conversation at the, at the same time, you know, sometimes meeting is really, really hard, but have everybody represented. And then if you had a situation where someone was really gung ho about someone, a candidate perhaps presented there and okay. So Dave can um, use his judgment as far as whether the person should personally present their case or in writing, but have the committee set that way uh, to vote. And, um, and like I said, the same way we were just doing this now, I think would be great. And it's embracing the new technology as well. As far as more wings, you could do that, but what happens if, for instance, you had a New Zealand wing. Uh, how many people would be voting in that particular uh, group? And then what happens is if you have, and I'm just using very small numbers purposely, if you have five people in the um, area, if three people vote for someone, that's going to be 60%, right? And does that, that gets them in, correct? So I, I don't really know how many different ways we could chop this up. But that would be my suggestion as the committee idea. Well, let me close out by asking you guys about a couple different things. Each of you give me your answer. Do you think there should be a wing for tag teams, even if one of the tag team members has already been inducted as a singles wrestler? Mike, what do you think? As a longtime, lifelong tag team proponent, I'm not going to turn that down. I would understand if it never happens i may choose if something was going to happen first like an extension of like i've been talking about of the non-wrestler where you know again we're referees or production or things like that i mean people that make things spin maybe they I, i again i i don't know if i would go with that first but if if it happened it wouldn't hurt my feelings because as we see with modern wrestlers and Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, <laughs> you know, the, the influence of those guys goes much further than just, you know, just the two years that they were together as a regular tag team. And, you know, does, should that count for something? The Andersons, who I think were unfairly and harshly criticized for quote unquote homesteading, I guess that was the reason why. Uh, other than than old than just only being a, a prick, you know, uh, of why they wouldn't make it in as, as a tag team. It just uh, 
why the assassins it took so long that was sad the the midnight express the rock and roll express yeah i mean the road warriors these are hall of fame units and i think if you were to go ahead and do that to to represent some teams i i don't think that's a bad thing and i don't think it matters if Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens uh, and, and Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens are recognized as part, even though they're already in, you know, we're not giving them rings and jackets and piles of money for going in. It's just really, it's a name on a piece of paper and it's, you know, it's the honor of, of being recognized as, as great in your field. So I think because of that, you could absolutely do something like that. And I don't think miss a beat because again, the, the tag teams are, I think they're criminally underrated and criminally underutilized and always have been for years. But then again, I'm not a promoter and most of the promoters seem to look bad upon them as well. See, I look at the argument being there are guys who are never going to get into the Hall of Fame and there are guys who are already in there. And you have to look at that tag team run as a separate entity. Steamboat and Youngblood, Rocket and Perez. I mean, those are two examples right there. Towie and Kawada. Barron and Rogers. I voted for Towie. Uh, this year I think I did last year as well and when I really stop and think about it I'm voting for him based on those tag team matches that I love so much and it makes me think technically Kawada and Towie should be in there as a team even though Kawada is in there already and certainly should be as a singles wrestler the tag team is a completely separate entity so Rock is in there and Rocka should be in there he's a first ballot hall of famer but Rocket and Perez as a team, I think, deserve consideration the same way I think Steamboat and Youngblood do. But let me open this up. Steve, what are your thoughts about tag teams? Uh, definitely open to the idea. Like I said, try to keep an open mind. I, I don't know if it would be something I'd be rushing to vote in, but, you know, if the I definitely consider it. And like you said, I think already your thinking is along with mine, as long as it encompasses the history of tag teams that were genuine attractions as a team, then uh, I'm all for it. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, the crush girls are in there individually. So would you put them back on the ballot? And uh, Jackie Sato's in there, but the beauty pair, would you put that in? Uh, I think as long as it, it covers, again, the history of wrestling and, and just bearing in mind, you know, the Wrestling Observer is – big on st- style. I think that's something we didn't really talk about today, but we did when we talked about Sayama, but you know, the stylistic teams would have to go in there along with the good drawing teams too, I think to, to reflect the wrestling observer, but yeah, definitely open to it. Pete, what are your thoughts? I agree hundred percent that it should be on there. And for many of the reasons that these guys just discussed, um, I was really, I don't want to say disgusted, but pretty close with the Anderson's, uh, as Mike was talking about, didn't get in. And the idea of homesteading, when you can stay over for that long, looking at that as a bad thing, I've always looked at as ridiculous. Um, also, if they did do the tag team thing, uh, I think that longevity would be a bit of a problem um, because a lot of them didn't team for that long. But I really be a little bit of a different consideration, I guess I'm saying for some tag teams, but I think it should be for sure. And especially with what's going on today, uh, if we don't get this in soon, uh, you know, tag team wrestling sort of going by the wayside these days, but that's another subject. You know, and Tully and Arn are on the ballot 
with J.J. Dillon, although he only managed them for one year out of their two-year run as a tag team, but that's a two-year run. That's the Sayama, you know, length of a run. The Steiner brothers, I would argue, were a Hall of Fame caliber tag team for five years, from 89 to 1994, and I know they kept going after that, but if you look at that specific period, and I usually try to look at at least a five-year period of Hall of Fame caliber, whatever it may be, drawing power or match quality, and I think the Steiner brothers should get some consideration for that. And that's where I think a tag team wing would, more than anything else, it would give guys, I guess, a chance to debate these things, which is really a lot of fun. Plus, look, I'm sorry, I got to shoehorn this in there. And granted, I'm a little bit biased, but it would get Arn Anderson in there. When I look at Arn Anderson and Jerry Stubbs, and Jerry Stubbs is another guy I love who will never make it in the Hall of Fame, but I just look at and he's in my own personal Hall of Fame. Arn and Ole... Arn and Bobby Eaton, Arn and Larry Zbysko, Arn and Flair, Arn and Tully. I mean, my God. And you look at his work, you look at his interviews, and, you know, <laughs> there's going to be somebody, I have a feeling, that 30 years from now is hosting whatever their version of a podcast is going on with whatever their friends are doing. And we got Dave Meltzer's, like, head cryogenically frozen, and they're all discussing the Hall of Fame, and they're going... Why the hell is Arn Anderson not in the Hall of Fame the same way we're talking about Enrique Torres and some of the people we're talking about? Well, how do you put him in if Dick Murdoch couldn't get in? Well, and that's it. And, and you know, that's where it's like, well, Eugene Nagata's in, and that's where the debates happen of, like, you know, why is Ultimo Dragon in, and why is this, and why is that, and, you know, the Kill Carl Cox, and, you know, you, you can brawl back and forth on it because, yeah, I mean, the, it, again, you open, once you open it up, and it's like, well, yeah, okay, if, if Murdoch's not in, why isn't Ole in? <laughs> you know, so, or, or if Murdoch's in, then why isn't Ole in? And it just, you, know, you continue to battle with it. Well, let me ask you guys that right now. One of the last two questions I'm going to ask everyone, Ole Anderson is back on the ballot next year where things stand today. Can you see yourself voting for him? I'm a yes on Ole Anderson. Mike, what are your thoughts? I'm a yes on Ole. Yeah, I think when you take the the whole body of the work, and I know people are always going to point and go, well, look at what happened in Georgia. And everybody, every promoter has lived, every promoter has died. The only one who hasn't yet is Vince McMahon. Everybody else is pretty much out of business. So, you know, everybody had their, their bad days, you know. So if you're going to hold that against him, if you're going to hold the fact that he didn't have to leave the states of Georgia and North Carolina unless he wanted to go back to his toothpick factory in Minnesota – fine but when you take in the the embodiment of all of everything from the time that george is split from even before that you know teaming up with 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 gene it's just the whole body of the work i don't know how they wouldn't go in i don't know why it took the assassins so long i don't understand how you could have such a force in an entire region throughout the entire southeast you can't tell the story and not have ole anderson involved in some way whether it be with ivan koloff whether it be with dusty Rhodes whether it be with whatever to me it's just it's pig the the same pig-headedness that ole anderson goes through life with i think that's the same thing voters have when it comes to the andersons and when it comes to ole specifically steve can you see yourself voting for ole anderson yeah, absolutely, you can. And uh, to echo what's been said, I've never thought homesteading is a, a, a negative on anyone's career if they're a star when they homestead. I mean, the whole thing about wrestling is you, especially in the old days, they're like gunfighters. You know, you went where you went and you made your decision and you stuck with it. And um, and he, he did great and amazing interviews. And, you know, and then in the non-wrestling, it was very good for quite a few years behind the scenes as well. Um, yeah, I, I think, and I've got a few 
few extra votes next year. So uh, Oli will most likely be getting one of mine. Pete, what are your thoughts on Oli? Can you see yourself voting for him? No question he's in. He, you look at his body of work as a wrestler, promoter, um, booker, and his impact on the business. I think it's an absolute no-brainer. Final question for you guys. We're talking about historians and ways to add to the Hall of Fame. It'll never happen because he'll never do it, but do you think Dave Meltzer should be in the Hall of Fame? Pete, let me start with you since we ended with you on the previous one. Um, Absolutely, yes. I know that it's his Hall of Fame in a sense, and um, the idea that, you know, putting himself in his own uh, deal in some people's minds would cheapen it, but you talk about every single thing we've talked about. I mean, obviously not ring work, but um, historical relevance. And if you put anybody in on a historian level, uh, you and honestly, even on a, a writing level, you have to put Dave in. Oh yeah, it's uh, he he would never do it, <laughs> obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, he didn't have the first newsletter by by any means. But when people think wrestling newsletter, they think Dave Meltzer. And, you know, Frank DeFord never, never said nothing nice about me. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and that, you know, w- with Dave, hey, it, it's just it's like Bill Apter. It's, you know, if he, it, it's like a lot of people that his influence is undeniable, uh, some for good, some for bad. But, you know, heart in the right place and all that stuff when it comes and, and a belief in what he's doing and a benefit at the end of the day to the business, because, you know, and again, not that anybody ever would want to, and this is going to sound weird to say, but like, you know, if I die, I want Dave Wright in my obituary. And nobody has, has, you know, for as much as crap as he's taken from wrestlers, like nobody has, has put them in a nice a nicer light many times out in the, the general public and with the media than Dave has. And he may have too an excitable way of talking about it sometimes or whatever, and he's Dave is Dave. You know, for sure. But damn, I mean, the reason we're all here talking about this is because of him. Of course, you know, once he, you know, is senile, he can't complain about it. Absolutely. He goes in. Absolutely. Along with a lot of other people that, you know, again, the the reason we're all here off the backs of some of their work. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's a no brainer. Dave's going, um, you know, it. Uh, well, what else can you say, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it. Yeah, we're still talking about it. It's when did this first happen? '96. Um, and if you looked at all the people that used to subscribe to his newsletter that were in the business, um, that pretty much does it. But then the bigger picture, and I think why we all want to be involved in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame because we think it would be the most accurate and most um, honest telling of the history of wrestling, and and the most honest telling of who the Hall of Famers were. So in his own field. He belongs in. Hallelujah. Continuing our look at the 2019 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame class, I'm happy to have three esteemed voters on the line right now to talk about their ballot, defend their choices, and maybe talk about things beyond that here on this segment. But first, let me introduce the host of Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. You know him. You love him, Jeff Baldrin. Jeff, thanks for being here today. 
I don't know about esteemed. That's kind of a stretch, uh, you know. But uh, who, who, who are the other three guys that are esteemed? Well, but thank you for having us. I we, appreciate. We have it. another two guys <laughs> beyond me and you. <laughs> They're esteemed. I don't know about me. Next, we have a man, the esteemed Vandal Drummond, Rockin' Jerry Brown. He's been known as a number of names as a wrestler, but for our purposes today, he is a longtime historian, and that is Kurt Brown. Kurt, welcome back to the show. Yo. All right. And, and he Just call Jeff me Vandal Venereal. Yo, yo, ma. <laughs> That's a Jeff Bowdrin impression with the yo there. But the next person, our returning champion when it comes to Hall of Fame discussions, all the way from over in England, and I really feel bad for him because within 24 hours, there was the vote that is going to affect Brexit and the vote for Big Daddy. And that is Alan Blackstock. Alan, welcome back to the show. Oh, man. It was definitely rough. It was definitely rough this last uh, week or so with me with these votes. So I'm glad to purge all that, get some uh, get some uh, opinions out there and talk to you fine gentlemen about the Hall of Fame because I'm sure we've all got plenty of things to discuss. We do. And before we get going any further, Alan, let's start with you. Can you please reveal your ballot for the 2019 class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Absolutely. I'll be uh, pleased to. So we went with the historical performers. We went with Wild Bull Curry, Sputnik Monroe and Bearcat Wright. In the modern U.S. and Canada candidates, we went with Junkyard Dog, Rick Martel, Sergeant Slaughter. In Japan, uh, Akira Tawe. And in Mexico, it's Carlos uh, Lagarde. And in no surprise in the uh, UK, Big Daddy and then Jackie Palo. And the non-wrestlers, I went with Dave Brown, Jim Crockett Jr., Gato, Maurice Siegel, and Stanley Weston. Vandal, Kurt, who was on your ballot this year? In historical era, uh, I got Wild Bull Curry, uh, Rocky Johnson, Sputnik Monroe. And in the modern performers, Junkyard Dog, uh, Wrestling in Japan, Kenny Omega. For Mexico, I have Los Brazos, Carlos Lagarde, the Misioneros, Viano Tercero. And in the Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific, Africa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I got Ricky Starr. For non-wrestlers, Jim Melby, Larry Matisik, Don Owen Moore, Siegel, and the Grand Wizard. And I laid the law down with Dave and said, "This, you know, you're messing up. The You should have it be a little more like WWE Hall of Fame, where people who have only been in the ring a few times, like Bob Euchre, Pete Rose, and the Fridge. So I, uh, rec- I recommend that we put in the San Diego Chicken, uh, a philanthropy award for uh, Dr. Sam Shepard. And last but not least, country star, the late Furlan Husky. (laughs) Very interesting picks there. Jeff, who was on your ballot this year? Well, just to be different, I didn't do it in terms of uh, the European theater, the Australian theater. I just did a, a, uh, I picked nine guys. So uh, my selections are uh, the Mongolian Stomper, uh, the Von Bronners and Saul Weingroff, Blackjack Mulligan, Rocky Johnson, Sergeant Slaughter, Don Owen, the Grand Wizard, Killer Carl Cox, shout out to my man Barry Rose, who loves Cox, and Bob Cottle. Real quick, let me ask you about that, because you picked nine people. Obviously, you're allowed to vote for ten, plus as many as you want from the non-wrestlers category. Did you specifically only pick this amount because you didn't want to vote for more, or did you not realize you could vote for as many as you could? I was probably lazy and didn't realize that, you know, I, I sent on my ballot for like a month and then it was like one of these, Oh crap. I think it's like two days away. I think that's what I did. Alan, let me, <laughs> let me start with you. Cause I think this is actually one of the topics that a lot of people have been waiting to hear 
us talk about here on the show. And that is Big Daddy once again not getting in. And actually, to expand this a little bit, you having Jackie Palo on your ballot, too, it's kind of one of those things where, for all the arguments we're making about Big Daddy, could you make the argument that Big Daddy shouldn't go in before Jackie Palo? But give me your overall thoughts on everything that happened this year. Okay. Uh, it was actually a positive year for Big Daddy this year. I've really close to throwing in the towel with going on and on about him because it's a stuck record at this point. But he's gone up from 35% to 45% overall. Uh, so he was only 15% shy now of getting over that 60% line. And it was quite interesting because he was number two in reporters. Um, and I think some of that will be down to my going on and on. And there's quite a few people that I know who have had votes this year for the first time and they all committed to vote for Big Daddy so I think that is some of it which is uh, really really good to see so yeah 15% off isn't bad at all so I'm quite happy with that and getting on to uh, Jackie Palo I think Jackie Palo was the bigger star I would say than Big Daddy in some ways um, in a more traditional era in the 60s. He was Mr. Uh, Mr. TV was his moniker. Um, he, he was a draw wherever he went. And I think, you know, I can see why people would vote for Jackie over Big Daddy. But you could you can look down the list and say, well, I wouldn't vote for, um, say, argue, arguably Kenny Omega in the Japanese category until uh, Akiyama goes in because he, he was before him. Um, and, I, and I think people would struggle if you went down that route. You know a lot of the arguments, and let me open up the floor to anyone else who wants to jump in with this, but you know a lot of the arguments which are, if you talk to guys that worked in England, guys who work for World of Sport or work for uh, joint promotions, they don't say good things about Big Daddy. It's quite the opposite. They say really bad things about Big Daddy, and that affects not just the votes he gets from retired wrestlers, but obviously if you're a voter who is hearing this over and over and over again, it affects the way you vote for Big Daddy, uh, or not you, but the average voter, what do you say to that? What do you say to the argument that Big Daddy wasn't good in the ring, that they didn't draw big houses with him? You know, the typical arguments you hear, and I know you've heard them all, what do you say? How do you answer the critics of Big Daddy being on the ballot and potentially being in the Hall of Fame? Well, he's one of those candidates in some ways supersedes the criteria for going in. He was a cultural icon in the UK. I'm not going to compare him to someone uh, like Ricky Dozen in Japan or El Santo in uh, Mexico. Far from it. But he was still... When he passed away, it was still mainstream news. It was front page news in tabloid media, um, even though he was off TV at that point uh, for over 10 years. He, he was someone that superseded pro wrestling. He, he was more of an entertainment star in the 80s, and he fit well into that genre at the time on the Saturday Light Entertainment TV shows that he'd appear on. And I think he was of the time. And I think, and I've always said this, you can stop anyone above the age of 40 in the street in the UK on any given day and say, name me a, a wrestler. And I would say the majority of them would say Big Daddy. If you said, name me a British wrestler, I'd say you wouldn't hear any Davy Boy Smiths, Dynamite Kids, um, anything like that. You would It would be Big Daddy Giant Haystacks, maybe Kendo Nagasaki. Uh, he is that level of fame. Uh, so in, in purest terms, no, he, he, he might not be a candidate that should go in, but I think he's just bigger than, than a being a wrestler. And I just think he can't be denied. And I just want to touch on as well, the point with Johnny Saints, he's the highest from from that uh, region to to get votes of forty eight percent, and I think a lot of that now comes down to the notion that he was World of Sport Wrestling, which couldn't be farther from the truth. He wasn't even the best wrestler from that era. If you go and look at someone like Jim Brakes, Jim Brakes was 
in my opinion, one of the top five heels I've ever seen. He was absolutely phenomenal in that style and ran rings around with Johnny Sane. I think Johnny Sane's been uh, kind of canonized in the uh, last 15 years by Chris Heroes and uh, Zack Sabre Juniors and William Regal now that he's all over NXT UK. Uh, and I think it's a shame that uh, certain people don't kind of delve in deeper uh, and look at some of the other potential candidates that have a better case in some ways than Johnny Sane's. I actually do concur with what uh, with what Alan says. I, I'm not even a big daddy fan uh, that much, and I actually have limited knowledge of the British scene. But uh, I've I've known a few people who lived in England, like in the '70s, who were Americans, and say exactly. You bring up wrestling, the first thing they bring up is Big Daddy. And I even had one friend who lives in the South who. During the WCW, he hated whenever they had a Van Hammer type or somebody who wasn't that great a worker, uh, but he loved Big Daddy from his time in England. Oh, amazing. There you go. So uh, the Big Daddy uh, and name spreads over to America as well, which is nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Jeff, any thoughts on this? Well, uh, I hate to burst your bubble here, Alan, but uh, having recently uh, done an interview for the Super Stud cast with Ron Fuller, we had Adrian Street as a guest. And I actually, knowing that uh, this was coming up, I actually posed this question to uh, to Adrian. I said, Adrian, is Big Daddy Hall of Fame worthy? And he said, absolutely not. Uh, he uh, he pointed to a, an incident with, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, the, the Burt Azzariti uh, incident. Uh, which, I mean, you know, it's neither here nor there. Maybe it just means he's not as tough as Bert Azzariti. But, um, you know, I guess... And who was? As someone who, uh, yeah, who well. was? That's, that's <laughs> a fair point. But uh, I guess as someone who, much like uh, Kurt, who's not really familiar with the British scene, at least back in that day, are we talking about a guy that was basically all show and no go? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Top of the card, uh, tagged with uh, smaller wrestlers. But he was a draw. He was that guy that people rooted for. It wasn't... UK wrestling, it was two-tiered. You had your, your lighter weight wrestlers that would work that World of Sport classic style that uh, is famous. But you'd have on top, you'd have the big, large lugs of, of men, um, just kind of punch-kick style. Uh, you can say, you know, it was similar to uh, WWF style in the 70s in where it was very, very non-flashy and very, very much kick-punch. But it's what people liked and what people you know wanted. And who can argue with you know his record drawing from, let's uh, say, 75 up until about 84? He, he had a really good record and a really good run. And, and, I, and I think people will always say, yeah, it couldn't work. Absolutely. I'm not here to argue that he could, but I think he should be in not at all because of his work, but for, for the, the fact that he is that famous, he's that big, he's that well-known. So you're I'm saying, in- you know, if you're going to use uh, like the criteria of uh, as a draw or as a name recognition, obviously he's in. If he's going to go by work, he's obviously not. So it's strictly as, if you will, a pop, the pop cultural uh, influence that he had. Yeah, well, I, I would I, say and that's, same- that's fact. Yeah, I say, and I'd say similar. Uh, I mean, in his early years, Martin Cardigan was a good worker, but you know, those last ten years, he could barely walk, and at times looked absolutely ridiculous just standing in the ring. But holy shit, was that guy over? I mean, that guy was over, huge. He yeah, thank like, you. Just like thank Big you for Daddy, drawing that comparison. Yeah, I've drawn that comparison as well. I've drawn that comparison as well with Martin um, um, 
sorry, what's his surname again? The man's gone blank now. Caradagian. Caradagian, yeah, for, uh, from Argentina. Um, Titans up. <laughs> yeah, he was he, he was someone I've drawn comparisons for. And when I've spoke to Dave Meltzer about it, he's uh, discounted it pretty much uh, and said, that, you know, I can't, it's not fair to draw comparisons between the two. Where, where like you said, he was broken down uh, very much end of his career, but he was someone that was a famous TV star and he, and he, and he got into the Hall of Fame. Yes, and very rightfully so. I mean, that guy was Argentina wrestling. He, uh, I mean, you know, despite what some people might think of Titanis in El Ring, um, th- that guy changed the rule book even more than Vince did in the 80s. And, uh, I mean, he totally changed wrestling, transformed it. And, uh, they, you know, his the mummy he came up with, that's the most imitated gimmick in South America, hands down, ever since the 1960s. Hey guys, on the topic of cultural influence, Jeff, you and Alan both had Sergeant Slaughter on your ballot. I did as well. How much of that played into your decision to vote for him? Not just his in-ring ability, not just his promos, not just his drawing ability, but the crossover into mainstream cultural acceptance, especially amongst kids in the 1980s through G.I. Joe. Jeff, let me start with you. How much of it, if any, played into that? Well, I mean... I mean, excuse me, it played a part in it because, you know, I can very famously remember my father who had zero interest in wrestling whatsoever. But at the time, you know, just as an example, in uh, 84, when the uh, the Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter thing was going on, you know, it hooked my dad for like, a, you know, what is it, a, a month, a month and a half. He would sit with me every week and watch the ongoing saga of Sergeant Slaughter and Iron Sheik. And he would laugh and and say, but it, it hooked him. So, you know, it meant that you know, much to somebody who had zero interest in wrestling. Now, obviously, when you're talking about, you know, the the dolls and and uh, becoming uh, becoming a figure that kids would identify as sort of a, a real life G.I. Joe figure, uh, you certainly you have to take that into account. I took it more more so than that, because you're talking about a guy that started off his his first big run was this uh, was a super destroyer Mark II, and then he becomes Slaughter, the the All American Patriot. Kind of ha- hits a little slow period there, but then he comes back as the anti American Iraqi sympathizer. So I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty damn good run, you know. I mean, I mean, you're talking about a basically about a 15 year run where he was working, you know, like uh, either as a great worker or on top of the cards, and to me that makes him Hall of Fame worthy. And I agree. In 1984. Everybody was talking about the Sergeant Slaughter Iron Sheik feud. Uh, the only thing they talked about as much as that was just Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan himself. And that's right. I mean, that's one thing important to point out. Sergeant Slaughter, and there are people who think his popularity in '84 rivaled Hulk Hogan at times. But the World Wrestling Federation had at least three different groups touring at one time. One of them was main evented with Roddy Piper versus Jimmy Snuka. One of them was Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Sheik, and one of them was just Hulk Hogan. There was no Hulk Hogan feud. It was Hulk Hogan the attraction versus whoever the top heel was, and it varied from town to town. So it really says something about the strength of Sergeant Slaughter there at that period of time. And of course, right at the end of 84 is when he leaves, and there is a little bit of a slow period where he gets the G.I. Joe deal, he gains a lot of weight, he goes to the AWA, doesn't wrestle as much, and I think that's one of the big periods where you can look at Sergeant Slaughter and go, well, maybe he's not a Hall of Famer. But I think just off the strength of 1980 to 85, that alone is enough, let alone him coming back in 1990, getting a world title run, getting the match against Hogan at WrestleMania 7, 
doing really good promos for the time. I mean, I know the Iraqi uh, sympathizer was a really hot button issue around, around wrestling in 1991. You go read the observer from back then people were losing their shit about the tastelessness of the angle and the feud with Hogan uh, and him, you know, burning the uh, American flag on TV. I mean, just crazy stuff <laughs> they did. But I think that just, and I have a similar argument for junkyard dog. If you just base it off 1980 to 85, that's a Hall of Fame run. That's a five-year Hall of Fame run. See, see what I'll say uh, is, you know, a lot of people, when they ask me, who would you vote for? They, they give me three names. Like, they'll say, like, Sergeant Slaughter, Junkyard Dog, or Kerry Von Erich, okay? And the reason that I pick Slaughter, and all, all three of those guys, if you want to give them a five-year run, are Hall of Fame worthy. Because I know there's a lot of people that are Junkyard Dog supporters when it comes to the Hall of Fame. The reason I give it to Slaughter over the other two guys is because he had more longevity. He reinvented himself, you know, or they reinvented him as the all, you know, the the anti-American guy in, in, the, in the early '90s. And you didn't even mention it, Brian. The run he had as Super Destroyer Mark II in the uh, AWA was a, he did a great job in that game, and that's when he really first became recognized in the business. So he had three different runs. You know, one is the the tag team partner with, and then the, you know with Lord Al Hayes in the AWA. His first run in the WWF as Sergeant Slaughter. Then the run in Mid Atlantic. The run back in WWE, and then you know reinventing himself uh, at WrestleMania Seven in that character. That's that's. That's a lot of stuff that was accomplished. And yeah, he had the dead period where he'd gained weight. You're right. But to me, that gives him more of a resume than even Junkyard Dog or Kerry Von Erich. And I, I, I want to I say that also that if you went through the whole list of Hall of Fame uh, members, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of them had some period in their career where they weren't all that. And so I don't think I don't think that should discount somebody from the Hall of Fame. Alan, what led to you voting for Sergeant Slaughter? Um, to me, um, he was one of my favorite bump takers of all time, especially as a heavyweight. When you look back, he was great at taking some big bumps over the years, and he wasn't afraid to do that even into the nineties. And I remember um, a bump he took at Royal Rumble '92. He was launched out the ring by Sid, hit the ring post on the way out over the top rope. It was awesome looking, and I, and I still remember that bump to this day. And that's very, very hard to say with the amount of wrestling matches nowadays. But that obviously wasn't the reason I voted for him. Um, it's important for perspective reasons to realize I wasn't around in 1984 in the US. So I'm looking at this through secondary eyes, through research uh, on how big he was. And from, from that run up to 84, as the Slaughter character, he was huge. He was well known. And, you know, I can go back to the argument I said about Big Daddy about how, how well known he was as a character outside wrestling. And I think you can't dis discount that, but he was a great worker. And touching what Kurt said about we shouldn't discount how he was after the WWF run in 84 when it when he went around to the AWA and then eventually came back in the, in the early 90s. Uh, people like Dave Meltzer will discount that as a reason or a negative not to vote for somebody. And I think that's unfair. If you've had a Hall of Fame run in a certain period, then you had a, you've had a Hall of Fame run, in my opinion. And, uh, and I think he's someone that is, I've always voted for in the years that I've had a vote here. And uh, it, it's someone I think who should definitely go in. And as looking at where he was, he's on 51%. So he's, he's in that range now where, where people go in, that there's going to be more people looking to vote for him. But I think as well, he's one of those people that if he doesn't get 50% this year, Brian, that he'll be off the ballot. You know, Brian, if I could, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, when they talk about uh, going back to the junkyard dog, when I look at him, 
you know, he had a, a five-year run in uh, Mid-South where he was absolutely electric, had the had the short run as a as the second banana to Hogan, uh, you know, uh, where he was really popular, but had begun to put on the weight and really lose a lot of his appeal. But I guess, you know, when, when it comes to Junkyard Dog, when it comes to Kerry Von Erich, when you consider his sort of like uh, run of incredible popularity, it's sort of to me uh, is like voting a guy for either the football or baseball Hall of Fame who was a tremendous player. You know, like all, you know, all world, everything, but only lasted five years, you know? Hey, Kofa- I mean, Koufax is in there for six years. No, right? I understand. You know, that was the argument that was made against Gail Sayers, for God's sakes, is that he really only had a run of about six or seven years. Same with Butkus. And I know recently Terrell Davis that played for the Broncos for years. That was tremendous. But he blew out his knee and he was done after five years. And so you have to ask yourself, does a five-year career – does that make you a Hall of Famer? And, you know, there are some guys that the answer is yes, but there are other guys that that is taken into account. And you have to factor that. Well, there's a term that I've started using uh, during this recording, which is maximum impact. And what I mean is Satoru Sayama, and, and people who are listening and are probably going to be tired of me saying this over and over again, but Satoru Sayama, the original Tiger Mask, is in the Hall of Fame, and rightly so, for two years for the impact he left on the business and he made on the business in two years. Junkyard Dog <laughs> had maximum impact. I'm sorry? Nah, I think Sayama's impact was a little longer than two years. No, no, no. But no, I'm, no. Sorry. I'm not saying his impact was only two years, but I'm saying the impact he made during those two years and after it. I'm not saying the impact was only two years. I'm certainly okay. not saying that. His impact is being felt today. Yeah. But I interrupted. I'm sorry. But that's maximum impact. And I think with the Junkyard Dog, more so to me than Kerry Von Erich, I look at maximum impact and what would Mid-South wrestling and what would Louisiana wrestling be without the junkyard dog? Would Bill Watts have been in a position to take over Oklahoma if he hadn't been able to ride on the back of the junkyard dog, an unproven commodity who was made into a superstar in Mid-South wrestling. And I think if you look at 1979 through 1985, and you may even be able to argue 1986, junkyard dog had a hall of fame run because he was again not the greatest worker although i also think because of how bad he got as a worker he doesn't get enough credit for being an okay worker in the early 1980s before he started gaining weight before he got lazy after he left bill watts was another story although the wwf put him with terry funk and that hit a lot of it in 1986 but look at the impact he made on the territory if the territories hadn't gone out of business, I think we were already starting to see in 1984, he was going to be a touring attraction. He went to Florida. He went to world class. He went to mid Atlantic. He went to Memphis. He was going to be one of those guys. If the territories hadn't gone out of business, that would have gone from territory to territory. Now we can't vote on could have been, or would have been, or what would have happened. But I think if you look at the impact he made, and then you look at also the crossover appeal, he was one of the first mainstream stars of the expansion era. Every kid I knew knew who the Junkyard Dog was. I knew who he was before I was a wrestling fan. From the cartoon, from the action figure. He was on the cups that were in 7-Eleven. He was one of the first mass-marketed wrestling stars of Vince McMahon's expansion era. And I think you take all of that into account, and there's a lot to weigh against it. The weight gain, the drug abuse, the Ric Flair match in 1990, which was the worst Ric Flair match anyone had seen up to that point. There's a lot. Including the Kerry Von Erich one? What what was the bad Kerry Von Erich one? The Kerry Von Erich one where Kerry was so coked up that he was half well, conscious. That, that could have been a lot of 
a lot of carrybacks. <laughs> no, there was one specific one uh, where he apologized on TV the next week because he said he was in a bad place because his dog died. And Ric Flair, if I remember right, I think Ric Flair had to carry him for an hour uh, when he was just like just completely out of it and it didn't fool anybody. <laughs> there were a lot of dogs dying in Dallas in the early 1980s. I'll just say that. <laughs> Uh, maybe some cats too. But that, that sounds like a phrase like jumping the shark. I like that. <laughs> There's a lot of dogs dying in Dallas. Yeah, and cats in Tokyo, yeah. But that's part of my argument for Junkyard Dog is is the actual impact he made on – And the maximum wrestling. impact. I never even thought of this, but uh, for the first time in my life, I'd compare John Tolis to Tiger Mask because in 1971-72 uh, – John Tolis and Fred Blassie was prof- they were professional wrestling in Los Angeles. I mean, that was talked about like for decades after. Well, Kurt, let me ask you about someone on your ballot that I found interesting, and maybe this is a maximum impact equation here. But you voted for Kenny Omega. I personally see it as too early to vote for Kenny Omega, and I also kind of have an issue in general with voting for guys who are so active right now, who are in the middle of their careers. Because we don't know how things are going to play out. Explain your decision to vote for Kenny Omega. Was it purely based off the strength of a year and a half, two years of those matches in New Japan, those Okada matches? What made your decision to vote for Kenny Omega so easy? That was, uh, well, wasn't an easy decision. <laughs> uh, it's not that often I'd vote for an, uh, for an Omega-like person. But uh, he's somebody who just draws me to the TV set, and that's a very rare thing for me these days. Uh, Yeah, if you want to ask what it is, it is that run, like the Okada run. That's what got me turned on to him. And it's not – part of it is his technical work, but a big part of it is I just – man, I just love the way he sells stuff. Um. He just seems so in tune throughout each match. Uh, I don't know what to say. I'm a huge mark for him now. Here's one for you, Brian. Is he, name a better North American wrestler of this decade or this century that's not in the Hall of Fame? Uh, AJ Styles is in the Hall of Fame. Brian Danielson's in the Hall of Fame. I'm trying to think of how Seth Rollins, it's debatable if he's at that level of worker. I think at times he has been, but it's been inconsistent, especially in the World Wrestling, I'm about to say World Wrestling Federation, in WWE. But I mean, that that is a good argument for Kenny Omega right there, Alan. But part of my thinking is, and I would even apply this to AJ Styles and Brian Danielson, you know, more maybe Brian Danielson than AJ Styles, to be quite honest with you. If guys are active... And I actually, now that I think about it, I think Brian Danielson may have been retired when he was voted in. But if guys are active, I kind of want to take a back seat. Guys never retire. But I want to wait until maybe someone's at least 45 years old that I have enough of a body of work to evaluate. Jeff, what do you think about this? I, I, I got to tell you, that's exactly the reason why I didn't put Kota Ibushi on my uh, my back. Because I think Kota Ibushi is probably right now, nah, I think him and Okada are like just right neck and neck as to who I think is the best wrestler in the world. And Kota Ibushi, I, I've yet to, I mean, I know he had the run where he was out doing the kind of uh, stuff that, that Cornette criticizes Omega for doing the kind of, uh, kind of crazy stuff, but you watch that guy and I, I keep waiting to find a weakness in that guy. But like, you know, I understand even though he looks like he's 19 years old, he's 35 or 36, but 
you know, as active as he is, he's he's still an ongoing wrestler. And I just don't, you know, it'd be like voting for, uh, you know, uh, somebody that's in the NFL playing right now. For, I mean, you know, we have guys that are in the NFL, uh, you know, that we know are eventually going to get there, but it's a little early to vote for him, you know? And that's why I wouldn't vote for Omega or Ibushi because they're both still active. And I, and I generally would agree with, I generally agree with that totally, totally. And I don't think I've ever voted for Danielson or Styles. You could correct me if I'm wrong if you look at my past ballots. But uh, another thing I like about Omega is, you know, a lot of people complain that there's no characters in wrestling. And I, I would much rather watch uh, Omega wrestle than Danielson or um, or AJ Styles because Omega's one I would recognize out of the lineup of the three of those right away where AJ Styles could walk right past me and I wouldn't recognize him. Well, let me, put and, this, let me put this to the round table here because this may be something that proves I'm a hypocrite when it comes to this. I think that people have said that before. I think that Okada, <laughs> people being you, I think that Okada is a clear cut first ballot hall of fame, even though he's in the middle of his career. Do you guys agree with it? Does anyone disagree with that? No, I absolutely agree with that. That guy's amazing. I agree with it too. Hey, and, just uh, 30. I, I agree. All right. Well, let me ask about another controversial one, or maybe not controversial, but an interesting one. Jeff, you and Kurt both voted for Rocky Johnson. And I could recognize what a big star Rocky Johnson was in various different places. But I look at Rocky Johnson, and I hate to use this name as the point, but it really is the, the guy to use. I look at Rocky Johnson as being at that Dick Murdoch level of right at the cusp. I, you know, and maybe even a little bit below that, quite honestly. I don't know if he was above a Dick Murdoch in terms of how I would view him on the ballot. Give me the defense for Rocky Johnson. Kurt, let me go to you first. Why do you think Rocky Johnson belongs in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Well, for one, I thought he was an excellent babyface. I think uh, he's one that people just raved about back in the day. Uh, and as I recall, I think he was a pretty good draw in a lot of territories. And, uh, you know, I think it weren't for the times. I think they would have considered him uh, as an NWA uh, possible contender. I think it wasn't Irv Mushnick. Who's the other? Wait, there's Phil Mushnick and Irv Mushnick. I can't remember when Sam Mushnick passed away. I think somebody, uh, one of the Mushnicks, you know, was saying, you know, don't go overboard with thinking my dad was super progressive because I, I think they mentioned something about people asking if Rocky Johnson was a contender and it was a flat out no. Well, neither one of them, let me just, let me just clarify, neither one of them were Sam's children. Irv was Sam's nephew and Phil Mushnick has no relation to the Mushnick family of wrestling. Oh, then it was the one that's related. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time I made a fool of myself and it won't be the last. <laughs> Jeff, Rocky Johnson, why is he a Hall of Famer? Okay, so this question actually came up on our uh, podcast, Breaking KFA with Bowdrin and Barry at uh, bowdrinpod.com. But anyway, uh, and of course, my co-host Barry has known Rocky and his family since he was literally like, I don't know, like 10, 11, 12 years old. And, you know, was president of the Rocky Johnson fan club. So I asked, you know, the, the question was asked because someone on our Facebook group had said they don't think Rocky Johnson's a Hall of Fame worthy candidate. And so we put it to Barry. We said, why is Rocky Johnson a Hall of Fame candidate? And he said the guy was a headliner every single territory that he because the, the question came up. Oh, where's he ever worked? Where's he ever been a headliner? And Everywhere. the problem. 
Yeah, the problem is, is a lot of people, much like when you say the words junkyard dog, a lot of people remember that terrible run in WCW in 1990. They remember him, you know, starting to gain weight in, in WWF, like, you know, 86-ish. And the problem with Rocky Johnson is the Rocky Johnson that a lot of people remember is the Rocky Johnson, you know, just after that run with Tony Atlas when he was kind of there and, you know, being phased out of the WWF. And they forget the run that he had in the late 60s in California, early 70s when he was working. The 70s, he literally worked, I think, pretty much everywhere but the AWA, you know, and he was put over everywhere. You know, he had an amazing run in uh, Florida. He was put over in he was put over in Georgia for God's sakes, you know a, a black man during the early seventies that is put over as your Georgia heavyweight champion. That's that's pretty progressive stuff. I got to be honest with you. And other than that. calling him Soul Man, they didn't play a, on a lot on stereotypes. And, and, you know, his I'm actually right in the middle of his book, which by the way is actually pretty good. I have to give credit to you know Rocky and Scott Teal. It's a good book. He he talks about the fact that there were promoters that wanted him to basically excuse me for saying this, kind of do the Rufus R. Jones step and fetch it kind of thing. And he absolutely mm-hmm. said, no, I'm an athlete. That's how I'm presenting myself. Not as some sort of character. You know, I'm an athlete and that's the way I'm presenting myself. And, you know, and, it pro- and, you know sorry. I was going to say, it probably took a lot for him to do that back in that time period because there was a lot of promoters that absolutely wanted him to do that. And, uh, and something where it should give props to Sam Mushnick is – he was one of the few promoters who would not bill him as the soul man, and that was much Nick's call. And you should have seen the flurry of drop kicks that guy would throw in the early 70s, which is something I challenge even workers today to do the way he did. Yeah, it was poetic. But, you know, Brian, I, I'll give you credit. I mean, the Dick Murdoch comparison, you know, as far as being on that cusp, uh, you know, that's not something that's completely inaccurate. I, I, I get the people. But let's put it this way. If he's not in the Hall of Fame or, or shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, he, he's got to be right in, the, in that group that are just underneath it at the very least. This guy was a big deal during the 70s. I can tell you that. Well, Alan, you and I both voted for Bearcat Wright. I'm curious, Jeff... And Kurt, why didn't you vote for Bearcat Wright? Quite frankly, I didn't know anything about think, him, but but I can tell yeah, you, I don't. I, it's not that I don't think he should be shouldn't be in. It's just I think there are a lot of more characters ahead of him, and also his, history has changed on him. Um, a lot, you know, a lot of people rave about him, but a lot of people were not too keen on him way back when because you know the Blassy incident whoever however well I, I can down. tell you, Kurt I can tell you based on what I've read in Rocky's book Rocky was not a big fan of his because he pulled some shenanigans with Rocky uh, involving the sale of a car that he didn't own <laughs> so that's <laughs> yeah that's a pretty great story <laughs> I never heard that yeah well you know and same with a lot of people praise Thunderbolt Patterson but uh I, I suspect even a lot of people who praise him today hated him way back when, you know, because of, you know, I think I think it was kind of a, a business loyalty thing. You know, they they struck out against the business, and Bearcat Wright didn't do any favors when he had one of his wingmen for, uh, you know, his his movement against pro wrestling be Ron Pope. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's a good point. Alan, what led you to voting for Bearcat Wright? And for the record, I voted for him as well, and of course, he did get in this year. 
Well, I think the main reason, and I think the main reason everyone talks about was being, quote-unquote, the first black world champion in WWE, uh, Fred Blassie. And from there, he, he was a draw. He, he was a draw all over wherever he went. He, he worked Florida, worked San Francisco, he worked in even Hawaii, uh, all around Canada, Australia. He was a draw wherever he went. And for a, a long period of time, uh, from what would have been, what, 1960, something like that, he won the title uh when would that have been 63 uh was, was it when he won the title i think but yeah he was he was blackballed wasn't he from wwa he was he was someone that was not not talked about well amongst other wrestlers but being the black first black world champion being a big draw wherever he went for a long period of time i, I think for me that's the, the reason I, I voted for him now jeff you didn't vote for sputnik monroe i did alan did and kurt did why didn't you vote for sputnik do you think there's a case against him um, well, let, let me just, let me just say this, and this is not why I didn't vote for him. I had someone tell me, and I, quite frankly, this is a question I need to ask uh, Ron Fuller. There is a, uh, someone who told me that the whole advocating for, uh, the blacks to be in the building and, and, and at ringside that he's so famous for, uh, for being supportive of that was basically something that was advocated by the promoters themselves but they put Sputnik out in front of it as a way of getting Sputnik over. Have you ever heard that story? That is one of the versions that has been told. I think even Dave Meltzer has said it. And yeah, there is a lot we don't. That's know. not why I didn't vote for him. I'm just saying, you know, yeah, there, there uh, is a lot. We don't know the inner workings of obviously in 1959 in Memphis. You know, sure. we can't deny that he got arrested for hanging out in the black clubs on Beale Street. I mean, there's a lot that actually got into the newspaper and he certainly was a major star, and they had that match, him and Billy Wicks, with Rocky Marciano as the referee, which drew the biggest house in Memphis history. But in terms of who said what and who knew what, you know, Sputnik was there. A lot of people have said Roy Welch was the one who made the decision. Obviously, Buddy Fuller. A lot of people forget. A lot of people just think it's Roy Welch in Memphis, but Buddy Fuller was the one running Memphis for his dad at that period of time. He was the one booking it. He was the one listed as the promoter in the programs. So I think there is a lot that we still need to discover, but uh, go on. I didn't mean to jump in there. No, no. And uh, if I could sit here and say, well, there's a specific reason why I didn't vote for him. I, I couldn't give you that. You know, you, you called me out on not having 10 names on the ballot already. So maybe he should have been the <laughs> there's 10th so many one. People, there's so many people I'd love to vote for, but you get to pick 10. <laughs> so, well, and you know, you like to think that, you know, and here this is probably the third time I referenced it, but, you know, when you think about a baseball Hall of Fame, basketball, football, whatever, you like to think that someone is either – there shouldn't be any, well, you know, and, you know, you just said that about – you were talking about Rocky Johnson. To you, Rocky Johnson is a well, you know, and if if – I think if somebody is either like, oh, yeah, they're in, you know, or they're if they're a well, you know, maybe they shouldn't be in, and maybe that's the reason why I didn't vote for Sputnik. Maybe he was a well, you know. Yeah, you know, for Baseball Hall of Fame, I would make it the comparison, let's say, there's Willie Mays and there's Harold Baines. Yeah, exactly. And they're both in the Hall of Fame, and one of them is, it's impossible to say Willie Mays isn't a first ballot Hall of Famer. With Harold Baines... Here's 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 a good one, Brian. Ted Simmons just got in. Okay, exactly. You know now, that's a great my dad point. is yeah. a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan. Okay, and I remember Ted Simmons being a 
really, really good baseball player, okay, for the Cardinals and I think later for the Brewers. But you know what? When I think of a Hall of Fame baseball player, Ted Simmons is not the first guy that pops into my mind. I'm sorry. And neither is Harold Baines. You're absolutely right. And you know what? Maybe that goes to an issue I have with who actually does the voting. Because Harold Baines got in because of the Veterans Committee, which was former players voting for another player. And with the Observer Hall of Fame, obviously there are four categories, historians, reporters, active wrestlers, and retired wrestlers. And that's where you start to see maybe personal feelings get in the way of voting, in the way positive or negative. I mean, Ole Anderson's on the ballot next year. Is Ole Anderson going to get in? Are enough guys out there who don't like Ole that they'll say, no way, I will not vote for him, and I I don't know why anyone would. And and here's here's another question is, do you vote for the guy that's a, well, you know, or do you vote for the guy like Junkyard Dog or Kerry Von Erich that's a five-year wonder that for those five years was absolutely Hall of Fame, but maybe just didn't last as long as a Hall of Fame caliber wrestler? I think with me, the Tiger Mask rule is what I apply. Maximum impact for two years. So if he can get in for two years of impact, and look, it's a major impact. It's being felt today. But that means, to me, if you could have five years of a Hall of Fame run, that, to me, is a qualifier. And, you know, it's come up on this show, and I have to get everyone's thoughts here, but I don't look at Tully and Arn with J.J. as Hall of Famers. I think you can make an argument for Arn Anderson, and quite frankly, if Murdoch's not in, I don't know if Arn should be in. You can make an argument for Tully, and you can make an argument for J.J., but when you lump them in together, we're talking about, as a team, what, a a two-and-a-half-year period, and with J.J. as a manager, a year and a half, and then they'll go to Bobby Heenan. So how do you take a tag team like that? How do you take an act like that for a relatively short period of time and include them on the ballot? And they did really good. I mean, they they were just in that that range with Sergeant Slaughter and Kenny Omega and Carlos Lagarde as guys who, if a couple of votes had gone a different way, they could have gotten in. What do you guys think? Alan, let me go to you. What do you think about what I just said? I don't think it's long enough. You have to consider, it says with Dylan. So with JJ Dylan, it's 18-month run. Uh, Max, it was a great 18-month run. Fantastic. One of my favorite teams. Not going to deny that, but it was just that short of a run. And with Dylan, there's something about it that just doesn't feel right for me to, to commit a vote to it, considering that I wouldn't vote for someone in the Luch category at the moment, like uh, Caristico, Mystico, who was the biggest draw for 10 years uh, around the world uh, overall in the, in, the, in the first part of the decade or the century. So it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit strange for me to kind of go, I'm going to vote for Blanchard, uh, Blanchard and Anderson for, for personal reasons, purely as a fan. Yeah, one of my favorite teams, but for Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, no. I <laughs> I got to totally agree. I used to love, you know, I was watching pretty regularly when they were a tag team. I loved watching them, but I don't think there was this, like, lasting impression, you know, especially with the casual fans. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to, yeah, I, I think there's something to it. I, I got to say, when I'm looking at the different categories of people who are voting, I'm most intrigued with the active wrestlers, uh, especially compared to the retired wrestlers, because I'm, Looking at just the diverse, uh, you know, just the variety of people they, you know, Johnny Saints on top, uh, Los Brazos second, you know, and then there's Gato number six. They have quite a variety, and I, uh, you know, I just remember back in the day, you know, the at least the American wrestlers I knew were so just opposed to like the Mexican style, and. 
I think it kind of is reflected on the retired wrestlers' votes. You know, that you don't see the any of the uh, luchadores, you know, until around number ten or eleven. So they're voting for some of them, but. I'm really impressed that a lot of the active wrestlers seem to have such, I don't know, <laughs> such diverse taste. I mean, when I saw Zack Sabre Jr. wrestle Negro Navarro and then after the match get down and bow to him, you, would, <laughs> you wouldn't have seen that in the, in the early 80s. Jeff, what are your thoughts on Blanchard and Anderson with Dylan and using that as an example for longevity? I did not vote for them. I think they were a great, great tag team that did not last long enough. Uh, you know, the, your maximum impact uh, uh, standard there. Uh, the other thing that I, I have to point out, and I know people are probably going to really shit on me for saying this, but as great as they were, were they the greatest team uh, working at that point? Were they as good as Bobby and, and Stan? Uh, you know, because the Midnight Express, even though they weren't as pushed as hard as, as Blanchard and Anderson, I thought were a better team. That we just so happened we had two really great teams going on, but at that point my favorite tag team was the Midnight Express. It wasn't Tully and Arn. That's not to poo-poo their accomplishments when they were working with JJ. They were fantastic. They were working the top of the card, but I just didn't I didn't find them as good as 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 Bobby and Stan. And you know, based on that standard, I, I did. By the way, uh, not not to jump back and forth here, but. Uh, I wanted to jump back real quick on the Dick Murdoch thing when we were talking about that. At the last fan fest that uh, we had uh, in uh, in Tampa, we had uh, Barry Windham and J.J. Dillon uh, discussing it. And that question, uh, because it had come up on our fa- Facebook group, I said, guys, I want you to tell me, look out to that crowd and tell me, is Dick Murdoch, tell these fans, is Dick Murdoch a Hall of Famer? And Barry Windham said, Dick Murdoch is a Hall of Famer, slam dunk. No question about it. And J.J. absolutely agreed with them. So I just wanted to throw that point in, too. Well, let me throw something out there that may be a little bit ridiculous, and I hadn't thought about it until this moment, but we're looking at Blanchard and Anderson with Dylan. But let's just say Blanchard and Anderson. And we're looking at them from what you would say, I guess, is 1987 to 1989. Should Demolition have a vote? Because here's a tag team that was together from 87 to 90, and was a babyface team from 89 to 90, had great matches at times, of course, with Blanchard and Anderson were some of their best matches, but were super over. When I was a kid watching WWF in 1989, them and the Ultimate Warrior were as over as anyone with all the kids I knew who liked wrestling. bit longer as a tag team than Blanchard and Anderson. And during that period of time, who made more of an impact? You know, you're you're judging work rate versus moving merchandise and having fans into your matches. I'm not saying one versus the other. I'm not even saying I would vote for demolition. But I think if Blanchard and Anderson are on there for that period of time, it opens the door to a lot more. I've said it earlier on other recordings for this episode. If they're on there for two years, how come the Steiner brothers aren't on, on there from 89 to 94? In America and in Japan. You mean to tell me that wasn't a Hall of Fame run in terms of work rate? If Blanchard and Anderson are in because of how they work, because they're not in there for their drawing ability, and that's not a shot at them. That's just, in my eyes, I don't think that's why they would be getting votes. It's for their in-ring work. Then why shouldn't Rick and Scott Steiner have that same consideration? Any thoughts well, on the that? Stein- yeah, well, the Steiner brothers have been on the ballot before. I just looked it up in 98. They dropped off the ballot with less than 10%. And in 2006, they came back on. They got 15%. And then they dropped off again in 2007. So they've already been on twice. Demol- Demolition haven't been on at all yet. So if we're setting a yardstick and saying 
the Steiners on in and shouldn't be in. So then really it would be hard for someone like Demolition or someone like Tully and Arn to, to get votes. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You, you said the Steiners are 89 to 94. I, I don't know that their run necessarily, in my mind at least, lasted that long. Now, there was a, a time, I want to say like maybe 89 through, let's just say 91 or 92, where they were really good. And, you know, part of the problem that I've said before is that at some point, Scott Steiner decided he didn't want to be the next Jack Briscoe. He wanted to be the next Road Warrior Hawk. And as he got bigger and bigger and he became, what is it, the big bad voodoo daddy or whatever, he started morphing into Road Warrior Hawk slash superstar Billy Graham. And what, <laughs> what made him so— By the way, it's booty, not voodoo. Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So that's I stopped being a fan, <laughs> you know, because I, I thought the guy was great in the late 80s and early 90s. And yeah. then at some point when he started, you know, gassing up, I, he just he just really fell out of favor with me. I didn't like him nearly as well. And, uh, you know, he had that match. I'm sure you guys remember the match with Flair on the Clash of Champions where everyone was like, OK, this is it. This is where we crown the next guy that's going to take over WCW for Flair. And it was like uh, the old fart in church, man. Nobody, nobody was like, what the hell happened there? That match wasn't anywhere near as good as it was supposed to be. Because well, it was more Flair's match than a Scott Steiner match. I think that Eggs, was part yeah, of the yeah, yeah. And it was also like 14 minutes long, I think. Well, on the topic of Japan, Alan, you and I both voted for Akira Taui. Uh, I previously was not convinced he was a Hall of Famer, but I started thinking about it more and more, and I voted for him this year, voted for him last year, too. I also voted for Yoshiaki Fujiwara, who, in my eyes, is, for Japan, above that Dick Murdoch level. And I think he should be in there, and he's been, I mean, he got, let's see, this year he got 28%, last year he got 38%, so he's actually dropping in the voting. Alan, what led you to vote for Akira Taui? Um... Being one of the four pillars mainly in all Japan during that golden run in the 90s, he was the fourth best, I would say. He looked a little bit like a rickety old man at times, um, like Giant Baba's illegitimate son. Um, but he could certainly go in the ring. I mean, the, the amount of tag team matches that those four guys had, they were off the charts good. Yeah, you can argue he could be carried once, twice, but, you know, you watch them and you watch them in real time. I, I followed all Japan and I was lucky enough to get tapes uh, within six months at the time. But, you know, following... 95, 96, 97, and then caught up in the earlier years, his just output was just absolutely phenomenal. And, and, I, and I think it's very, very hard for someone who watched that, that at the time and to, to see it at the time and the influence of that style of wrestling to this day, uh, it's very hard for me not to have voted for him. You know, a topic that came up on other segments here was the idea of tag teams being a separate category. and how in some cases it would lead to someone being inducted more than once. But if they're in a Hall of Fame tag team, maybe that's necessary. Steamboat and Youngblood being an example. Rock and Perez being an example. Do you think maybe what hurts Akira Taui is that he's on there alone as opposed to Akira Taui and Toshiaki Kawada? He was on. He was on. He was on my ballot last year, and I uh, I didn't have him on this year. Actually, I remember you. Uh, I think uh, on the same. Type of broadcast this time last year, you you kind of asked me why, and as I began to think of it more, much like Alan just said, he was the fourth guy in the group of four. You know, he was he was the uh, the least of the four, and quite honestly, the other name you brought up, Fujiwara, I think you could make a better case for Fujiwara and his impact, not only when he was wrestling, but uh, 
training the young stars in the UWF and yeah. uh, becoming a, such a focal point of that promotion. He was basically Minoru Suzuki before Minoru Suzuki. He's another guy I wanted to vote for, but, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to vote for 10 other people more. I loved watching him in the 80s. I, he, there, was, there was this presence about him. He looked like an old alley cat who just, gets in, <laughs> who just gets into scraps, you know, and just doesn't take crap from anybody. You, I, I, he, he was something to watch. Yeah, Brian, he, he you know, just, you, you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Kurt. You, you were talking about tag oh, no, teams. Just, he, he just looked so badass. <laughs> His tag team with uh, Kazuo Yamazaki was amazing. Uh, you know, that they were able to come to, you know, they're in New Japan. They're essentially working a, new, uh, a UWF style, but they're so good at what they were doing that they made the matches entertaining within a New Japan style. All right. Well, another name I'll ask everyone about on your list, Jeff, you voted for Blackjack Mulligan. You're the only one on this call who did. I think you may be the only voter I've talked to. Uh, who did for this episode. Why did you vote for Blackjack Mulligan? Make the case. Um, well, you know, here again, as I'm looking and thinking about the impact during the seven. Now, obviously, if we talk about Blackjack in 83 and 84 in Florida, that's not a Hall of Fame guy. It's nowhere close. But, you know, the the impact that he made uh, – from about, mm, let's say, 72-ish, maybe 73, uh, from his run in the WWF, uh, his uh, his tag team with Lanza, and most importantly, uh, he had, they were a big deal out in Texas, too. Uh, but his run in Mid-Atlantic with Flair, where you know, a lot of people think that those two guys were basically, George Scott got all the booking credit, but it was Lanza, or I'm sorry, Manza, it was Mulligan and Flair that were, you know, the idea guys that were coming up with a lot of the ideas for the for the angles and and programs that were going on in Mid-Atlantic at the time. And that Mid-Atlantic area was just so on fire in the late 70s when he was there. Uh, and what is it? The, uh, oh God, help me out, Brian. The robe and the- uh, The hat. It was the hat, the robe and the hat. Yeah, that that whole angle and that, that uh, thing that just propelled Flair into new heights uh, as a single competitor. And and uh, I just think it was so influential. And his uh, and he maintained uh, that status. I think he went back and he, his run with Backlund, like around, what is it, about 81 or 82, wasn't nearly as successful because he had started to put on a lot of weight. But he had, if we're using the maximum impact, I think he had a good mm, – Let's say seven, eight years where he was uh, a maximum impact kind of guy in the in the wrestling uh, business in the United States. Kurt, a name that's not on your ballot, not on anyone's ballot other than mine here on this call, is Enrique Torres, who obviously one of the places he made his big impact was in California as the world's heavyweight champion. Why didn't you vote for Enrique Torres? Is there an argument against him or was it just you didn't have room on your ballot? Didn't have room. <laughs> There's so many people like that. Uh, he's somebody I'd actually like to be more just familiarized with because, well, one, I think he's very deserving, but, um, yeah, I have to be honest as far as his time in LA, that was done by the time I started watching. So I never got to see him like, you know, as a contemporary wrestler. Um, but as you know, as a historical figure, yeah, yeah, I think he should be in, (laughs) even though I didn't vote for him. Jim Crockett Sr. got in this year. Jim Crockett Jr. didn't. Alan, you voted for Jim Crockett Jr. Kurt and Jeff and myself did not. Why do you think Jim Crockett Jr. should be in? Well, firstly, I think he should be in above 
you know, his father, Jim Crockett Sr., he had more success. Jim, Jim Crockett Sr. set up a great tag team territory, chugged along nicely. It, it was good for what it was. It brought up a lot of talent at the time, but it really didn't have any huge peaks, whereas Jim Crockett Jr., yeah, he, he, he pretty much uh, exploded at the end for, for various reasons and managed to get a sale to Turner. But, you know, look look at that run in 85, 86, 87. Well, maybe not 87, but 84, 85, 86. He, they, they were huge. He, he was very, very successful. He got a lot of wrestlers over and he had a really, really good fun territory. He, he's someone that I've always thought, as a promoter, should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, there's, there is detractors, you know. There's people who could vote for other promoters like Don Owen above him. But I just think that his success, um, relatively short compared to some other promoters, but still very, very successful, is very hard for me not to vote for him. So that was the main reason I, I did vote for him, and why. I think he should go in above someone who didn't have as much huge success, but more longevity like a Don Owen. Any thoughts from you guys about Jim Crockett Jr. or Sr. actually? I think I, have, power to, is... I have to claim ignorance here. Sorry. <laughs> I I, I was... I, I'm not familiar enough. I, w- I would say, uh, uh, well, appreciating Alan's arguments, I, I think having a run of a couple of decades uh, at a, whether it's a more of a, flat line, you know, baseline level, as opposed to having the highs and the lows that Jim Crockett had while Alan's absolutely right. His high highs were very good. You know, he's also the guy that bankrupted, uh, bankrupted his father's company as he was famously quoted as saying, <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, I don't know how you give him a hall of fame, uh, you know, but there's a lot of people, uh, that, uh, you can say bankrupted companies that people th- b- think belong in the hall of fame. <laughs> Excuse me. So, uh, ask him right there. Well, I'm not sure who thinks Eric should be in the Hall of Fame, but on that topic... Eric thinks Eric belongs in the Hall of Fame. Maybe so. On that topic, though, I voted for Ted Turner. No one else did. Is it unreasonable, do you guys think, that I voted for him? Do you think that there's no argument to be made whatsoever? How do you guys feel about Ted Turner as a candidate? Mm, I mean, from my understanding, you correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be, but it seemed like he was the money man and he loved wrestling. But how hands-on was he? He wasn't hands-on at all. He was... Yes, that's my argument. Was he he basically Tony Khan's father? (laughs) Well, you know, no, he would basically be Tony Khan. If, you know, I think that's more the position. But I don't think he was anywhere near as hands-on as Tony Khan is, because Tony Khan's involved with the day-to-day stuff, whereas Ted Turner fronted the money, gave him the access through through his, his TV network, but, uh, you know, and now if Ted Turner was involved, you know, in a Jim Barnett kind of way, absolutely the guy would belong. But I, I think uh, I think it's pretty much he was uh, just providing the access more. And you got to not that I'm poo pooing. I mean, you know, you got to give him credit. He was the guy that, that put it on the uh, on the network and sent it out nationwide and completely changed the game. But oh, uh, I want to give him a big thank you for that. I mean, I, yeah, I want to bow to him and thank him for doing that. But I don't think he's a Hall of Fame candidate. No, we should look at it in the same way bankrolling companies. Should the Carter family for TNA be in the Hall of Fame? They bankrolled bankrolled a company for years that was always number two. Um, You know, they didn't get to number one. WCW did. Um, But Turner was just the money man. There was so many more moving parts uh, in front of him that would dictate if it was successful or not. Just not just his money, which was proven in the end. It didn't work out. 
if you take the Carter family out of wrestling history, I don't think wrestling history is radically different. If you take Ted Turner out of wrestling history, it's a whole new ball game. And, point. Oh, yes. And I look at junkyard, yes, you know, it kind of goes to my junkyard dog argument. If you take junkyard dog out of mid South wrestling, what does Bill Watts's territory look like and what does it become? And I think with Ted Turner, we could certainly look at him funding and buying WCW. And, and this is where it's almost more like baseball in this way that sometimes an owner gets in and for wrestling, you would almost think the promoter is the owner, but sometimes there's just an owner and Ted Turner was just the owner. And he bought it, he bankrolled it, and of course the highs of WCW were extraordinary and the lows were, were pretty bad. And there were lows before the highs and the lows after it killed the company. But he's also the guy that gave Van Gunkel a TV show. You know, at the same time he had the NWA promotion. That's a pretty significant and historical move, having the NWA and All South Wrestling on one after another. Because he could have gone either way. He could have said, no, I'm with them. Or he could have said, no, I'm sleeping with Ann. And that would have changed wrestling history right there. He is someone who I think recognized the power of wrestling. And it's always been said that between Braves baseball, Andy Griffith and wrestling, he built his television network, what would become the Superstation. It was WTCG, and then it was the Superstation eventually. It became that in a lot of ways on the back of professional wrestling, which was the highest rated show on cable television during those early years, especially. And I look at the entire, it's not even body of work. That's not even a fair term to use here, but I look at everything Ted Turner was a part of with wrestling. And again, I say, if you take him out of the equation, we don't know what it would be, but he was an important figure. And I think sometimes in baseball, and I hate to go back to baseball because Alan's probably saying, what the fuck? But I think sometimes with baseball, say Premier League, say Premier League. Yeah, I, well, I, I don't know if there's a Premier League Hall of Fame. I'm going to assume there is, and I think sometimes, and I, and I'm assuming a lot of the Premier League owners are very hands on. But I think sometimes you have to look at an owner, even if it's someone who just funded things, but also look at some of the decisions they made. Ted Turner's the guy who said, "Eric, what can we do? All right, I'm going to give you uh, two hours on Monday night against Raw." I mean. He didn't say, I'm going to put you on TNT. He didn't say, pick your day. He's the one who made it a war on Monday nights. So I th- Okay, Brian. Brian, and, and, should and, Dick Ebersol be in? Should Dick Ebersol be in? I don't think so, but I actually think there is an argument to be made. I think I could argue Dick Ebersol's induction uh, based on the maximum impact, using that term again, because he changed WWE production. He put WWE on Saturday nights. Uh, I don't know if his influence is as strong as Ted Turner's uh, just because of the difference in positions. But I think actually, Alan, if you wanted to come up with an argument against Ted Turner, I think that's a very strong one to to put someone like Dick Ebersole, Bonnie Hammer. Same thing. I, I think, you know, there are arguments being made against it. I voted for him this year. I don't know if I'll vote for him again, but that was part of my thinking was if Ted Turner wasn't there, we're looking at a radically different wrestling world. Now, I do want to say that's an excellent argument. I, I'm, I mean, I disagree, but that's a very good argument. No, that's very fair. Well, that's the fun of all this, is that we can disagree or agree. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. if we're voting on the Observer Hall of Fame, it's discussions like this that I think inform not only the people who don't vote, but can help us, can inform us for the future when the ballot comes in next year. Uh, before we wrap things up, let's get a few more names in here that you guys voted for. Alan, you voted for Gato as a booker. Give me your thought process behind it. Most bookers burn out 
very very quickly historically or they take turns at Jarrett and Lawler or someone in Memphis like that so to have the run that he's had with the success he's had and the different moving parts he's had to deal with with the jumps to WWE from AJ Styles and then had to replenish the Bullet Club being kind of the, the driving force behind the whole Bullet Club idea um, ta- pushing the stars on top where having Tanahashi as the ace for years and years but knowing full well that Okada was going to be the man to super seed him and, and be the focal point of the company and the downgrading of Tanahashi as well has been masterful booking and, and just, just bringing new people into the mix even you know there's arguments Naito should have the, the trigger should have been pulled in the past and maybe that's right because he's broken down a bit now but they've elevated Jay White they keep people coming up and there's still a lot of you know future in there New Japan with some of the younger younger guys coming up so I think Gado hasn't burned out yet and I always put trust in one promotion that's New Japan to deliver when it's time to deliver and they, they do more often than not and I think it's very hard to look back in history and look at a runner of, of a promotion that a book has had that's been as successful for as long as, as Gato's had and you know what if you're someone who thinks Omega right now is a Hall of Famer how much of that is on the back of Gato how much of that was him he lost AJ Styles he had to rebuild what he had there with the Bullet Club and he took someone who had traditionally been a junior heavyweight and elevated him, and it worked out spectacularly well. But Jeff and Kurt, I'd like to get your thoughts. Jeff, let me go to you about Gato being in as a booker, because I know you've watched a lot of New Japan the last several years. I, I think sometimes uh, you really, what's the old Arn Anderson line? Adversity introduces a man to himself. And I think Gato, uh, as Alan just said, was put in a position where he had to think quick, make decisions quick, push people that maybe he hadn't planned on putting in certain positions. You know, maybe he was maybe he was going to elevate Jay White a year later, you know, but now he's put in a position where he's got to elevate Jay White now. And I'm just using Jay White as an example. You know, uh, the decision to go with, uh, you know, with, with Okada and and all that. But I, I really like when a booker has to make decisions, when he's suddenly put in a position where, OK, it's time to change the game plan here. What have you got for us? And. You know, historically, we've now seen that that he has been able to, uh, on the fly, if you will, make those decisions that have you know bettered the company. I have to say, uh, I, the only reason I didn't vote for Gato was uh, because I know I've I've heard about what a great Booker he is, and I don't doubt it in the least. I just I haven't followed New Japan that closely, but. <laughs> What I have watched of New Japan is because of Kenny Omega, and that's because of Gato. So <laughs> maybe I have to, I have to read more up on him because I've had several people, you know, especially Fredo, just raving about his booking ability. Well, a couple more things before we wrap things up. You know, this year Paul Pons was put into the Hall of Fame as a historical oversight. He wasn't on the ballot. He was just put in because of, I guess, the uh, advocation by uh, Pat LaProd. Previously, this happened to Martin Kardashian, as we talked about. You were one of the people that really pushed hard for him. You ended up co-writing the bio that appeared in The Observer. Kurt, let me start with you. Do you think we need to do this more with guys, especially before either 1960 or 1950, who may have a tough time getting in on the ballot, but you could make a really good argument were major historical oversights that should have been in that first class? You know, I've advocated in the past. Got him on the ballot. Wild Bull Curry. I got Morris Siegel on the ballot. I've talked about mm-hmm. Roy Welch needing to be on the ballot. But will they even get the votes? I mean, are these guys that should be on the ballot 
or that should get the Martin Kardashian treatment? What do you think, Kurt, about this precedent that's been set now by taking guys with historical oversights and putting them in? I cannot say strongly enough a really, really emphatic yes with three explanation points. I especially think historical figures from the 20s you know, through the 40s are often overlooked. And a lot of times in countries where wrestling was really over, but just we're not as aware of it. Um, You know, and and Cardigan, I was, that took me about three years to convince, you know, to convince Dave uh, to, you know, put it up for a vote. And yeah, I think there's, I'm I'm trying to think off the top of my head who else is, well, Carlos Lagarde, because, Rene Guajardo, if I remember correctly, was one of the guys who was put into the Hall of Fame initially. And Rene Guajardo was really over, but uh, Carlos Lagarde, both as a singles and as a tag team with Guajardo, uh, I think is a shoo-in. I mean, they had the welterweight, world welterweight title on Lagarde for, from 1958 to 1965 uninterrupted, seven straight years. This guy was very over. And as a tag team, they were very over. Um, And let me just say, it is weird having him and Hurricane Ramirez on the same ballot with someone like Caristico. Not to diminish Caristico or the former Mystico and everything he did, but you're talking about two completely different eras of Lucha Libre. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... think, uh, Another one, you know, I I got Sangre Chicana on the ballot... He washed out. I kind of knew he would. I just wanted him to get just the attention that it wasn't until uh, Fredo of uh, Sparsa turned me on to Sangre Chicana, you know, because I saw him in his later years and I thought, yeah, he's okay. You know, but Fredo urged me to watch some of his early 80s matches. That guy headlined, he and MASA Uno, they headlined two straight CMLL um, anniversary shows singles matches, hair versus hair, two straight years, and talk about maximum impact. And if you could see Sangre Chicana when he was a baby face, man, people just just flocked to that guy like the Pied Piper. And, uh, well, that's why I am overjoyed that Viano Tercero is finally made it in, because that was one of the few where I just shook my head, because even after, when he was past his prime, uh, when I saw him in Tijuana and just when I saw tapes of him, especially if you saw him live, when if you were there live, just that guy was electric. He, he was there with his brothers, you know, a bunch of Vianos, but it was Viano Tercero that the people would cry for if he gigged and tore up his mask, you know. So, yeah, I, I really do think the historical figures really need more attention. There should be more oh, – the overlooked category, I think, needs more attention. Should the historical category, though, just be a select few of Dave's long-term, long-term historians, such as Steve Yoes and co., or should it just be Dave on his own making that decision? I think there should be a council. Um, Me personally, I think there should be... There is a council. Who's on it? Do you know? He He won't tell me. I asked him, and he would not tell me. Do we know how many voters there are? I've estimated around 200, 250, but that's just a purely S estimate. So there is a council. That's interesting, because I think that there is an argument to be made that there should be, and this has come up also on the show, there should be a veterans committee that can look at certain guys that may be historical oversight. Again, I look at 
who should have been in that first class? Are there guys that clearly should have been there? And the big one I've pointed out is Morris Siegel. How do you have Paul Boschin for 20 years of promoting Houston, but you don't have Morris Siegel in there for promoting almost 50 years and also control. Morris Siegel absolutely should be in. Yeah. For the same, yeah. in that same argument. Yeah. So, all right, guys. Well, before we wrap things up, two last questions for everyone. Ole Anderson's on the ballot next year. Will any of you be voting for Ole Anderson? I'll definitely consider him and look into his career more because he's someone that you can discount um, quite easily. Um, if you listen to certain people like we touched on before, but I think there's more to his actual length of his career and, you know, his run and his popularity in Georgia as well. I will definitely consider him. I don't know if I'll vote for him. Depends who else is on the ballot. Uh, probably consider him more as a wrestler than somebody who is a, a book, a promoter, booker. Um, yeah, he's definitely, I'll definitely consider him. I think he was probably one of the most important heels for almost about a 10-year run. So he absolutely should be considered. Uh, you know, it's one of these things. Do you vote for the guy as a wrestler for his work in wrestling? Or, or do you not vote for him because you think he's an asshole? You know, and, and, I, and I think that's the way people are going to you know, They're going to be gonna people find that, out that, that <laughs> don't vote for him because he's an asshole. Yeah. And, you know, you know. Like I said, I'm reading Rocky's book. Rocky, you know, pointed out an example where, where, you know, only said something to him right to his face, horribly racist, you know. And so I'm sure if you ask Rocky Johnson, do you think Ole Anderson's a Hall of Famer? Fuck <laughs> no. But, you know, if you look at it objectively, he, he probably absolutely deserves to be in. But, you know, like you said, like Kirk said, we got to see who else is on the ballot. Guys, as we close things out, one last question for you. Are there any ways you think that the Observer Hall of Fame could be optimized, can be improved? Are there changes you think need to be made? Do we need more categories? Do we need something for female wrestlers? Do we need something for tag teams? What could be done to change or modify the Observer Hall of Fame? Optimize it, to use that word again. Or do you think it's fine the way it is? Alan, let me start with you. I just think uh, Dave himself should promote it more and the reach he's got, the size he's got. Yeah, he, he releases the issue and the, the bios are always fantastic and he'll touch on it maybe half an hour, talk with Brian and unfortunately I don't think Brian's that qualified to have a, a well-rounded discussion about certain candidates that other people who he could have on would do. So I know he's had Matt Farmer on before and, and other people but I just think kind of like he should have a week of kind of podcasts, different discussions with different guest counter arguments not always with him uh, but definitely a round table discussion with Dave as well would help things and I think that's one way of promoting it and I think that's the easiest way you can do do it um, I'm, I'm just surprised he's never really done much Mark Bar like I said one wrestling observer radio a year Kurt what do you think any improvements or any changes you'd like to see made to the Hall of Fame mm, not too many uh, I mean I could probably think of some but I have a hunch that he gets letters and phone calls all the time about people telling him how he could improve it and he's probably going crazy with that. But if I were to pick one thing, uh, tag teams, definitely. Do you think someone should be inducted twice in that case? If it's someone who, let's use Rock and Perez as the example. Rock is in, Rock is a first ballot Hall of Famer. But do you think Rock and Perez should be in, even if Rock Ab- Absolutely. Just, just as uh, Eddie Graham should be in for Ed- as being Eddie Graham and as for being one of the Graham brothers. Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? We'll close out with you. What are your thoughts on ways to improve the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? 
I I agree with uh, exactly what Alan said about uh, you know publicizing it more, making it more of a panel discussion to advocate uh, for certain people, and make your positions known. And I think Kurt has a really good idea. I, I like the tag team idea because you know there are guys that were parts of tremendous tag teams that you know maybe just don't get in by themselves. You know, so I, I think those are two excellent ideas. There it is, the conclusion of our two-part look at this year's Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Hall of Fame class, everyone's ballots, everyone's thoughts. I want to thank all the tremendous historians and voters who appeared on this special two-part episode. I really do appreciate it. It was so much fun. I think we're going to have to do it again, and we certainly will. But until next time, want to remind you, the 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all the fantastic guests, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!